in the room early in the morning and we close those doors and we turn around and the band would be sitting here and we were here all together for about 12 hours straight. Take me there Ken, take me back. John would be, you can recognize that bass line anywhere. Let's talk about the album Rumors. A lot of people considered it at the time, and for that matter since, as the perfect or near perfect album for the times. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most famous rock albums in history. Lots of top 10 hits. What was it really about? It was about cocaine. Rumors. I'm keeping in mind that one, one critic called it a flawless record pulled from the wreckage of real lives. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've always been a firm believer that much of the appeal of rumors... It was about cocaine. Uh, ...went beyond the music itself. That's not to take anything away from the musical accomplishment. It was about cocaine. But you have to understand that we were five people. Stevie and I had been a couple for a long time. John and Christine McVie had been married. So you had these two couples. By the time we got up to Sausalito to start recording rumors, Stevie and I, although not quite as well defined, were estranged, we're not living together. We'd it was about cocaine. For all intents and purposes, broken up. John and Christine McVie were divorced. So normally when people break up, when there's uh, pain involved like that, uh, disappointment, um, heartache, people are allowed uh, a requisite amount of distance and time in order to let the dust settle before they move on. Well, we did not have that luxury. We were, you know, in very close quarters, never had the, the luxury to be apart. So therefore, it was about cocaine. For never really had the luxury of closure. And also you had three writers. So Stevie was writing songs, basically dialogues to me. It was about cocaine. I was basically writing dialogues to her. 
and Christine McVie was writing dialogues to John. So you could say that, that what we did beyond the music was, was really tap into the voyeur in the audience. Uh, people really were able to invest in us as people because they could see, and it was very well documented, thank God it wasn't today where everything is so much more, you know, uh, th there's no decorum at all anymore. But, you know, I mean, th that, uh, there was nothing to hide. Everyone knew that, that this was what was being written about. Everyone knew that, that these songs, the subject matter was what we were living. And I think it was about cocaine. All right. If All you, right. If you uh, didn't get the message here, rumors had a lot to do with cocaine. And so that's what we're talking about here in episode 25, Fleetwood Mac rumors. And it was about cocaine and some and breakups and a lot of turmoil and a lot of 70s madness. And we'll get into all of that. But first, a reminder of the CFX conceit. This is the Cultural Futures Exchange. Um, I'm Jeff, and that is Slip. And this is the place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera music today, but also uh, movies, TV, all sorts of other things. The context that they uh, came out, what's happened since, and our take on their future valuation in terms of a stock market go long, go short, stay neutral sort of thing. And it's a pretty simple idea. And I'll turn it over to you, Slip, because this resonated with you in terms of our original idea about this podcast, right? Right. So Jeff came up with the idea for the podcast, right? And he kind of said, well, you know, uh, this and, and, you know, to be honest, the conceit is kind of an excuse just to talk about things that we're interested in. And it's mostly centered around things when we were younger, right? Growing up and whether these stood the test of time or not. And it was kind of a mechanism just to talk about that in a context and a framework to talk about it. And we generally have the same structure around things. But I would say the genesis of this was a was a fund, right? This hypnosis fund where this investor is basically buying up the songwriting catalogs or the song uh the song catalogs of various artists. And one of those, I believe, was Stevie Nicks. That's right. And and I think I think that, you know, oftentimes during the shows, we don't really address the conceit that much, but I think we have to address it here with rumors, right? I don't think there's any doubt how we're gonna come out on the side of rumors. It's 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 kind of the the quintessential example of something standing the test of time and actually kind of even blowing up even more. You know, you think of things when I think of things like this. I think of stuff like, uh, you know, Journey, Don't Stop Believing. You know, like the, the Sopranos kind of brought that back, right? right? Journey, Don't Stop Believing. And, you know, Don't Stop Believing was kind of a minor hit at the time. It wasn't actually that big of a deal at the time. I think even Who's Crying Now might have been a bigger hit. Um, and, but it kind of came back with the Sopranos and it's come back. And now people go to Journey, go, go to see Journey, you know, with Arnel Pineda as the singer. And they go, a lot of times they'll leave after they play Don't Stop Believing. They're just there to see that. Right. So this song has just risen in value over time. And then you look at something like Rumors, where, you know, it was already one of the biggest selling albums of all time. And we'll talk about how what a major album it was at the time. I mean, just unprecedented uh, sale. I mean, obviously there was Carol Kane, uh, Carol Kane Tapestry was was bigger, right? But, but this was like, at the time, was a massive album. And... 
you know, we'll talk about how long it was at number one and, and et cetera. And what, a, you know, how they were kind of the biggest band in the world for a while, kind of vying with the Eagles for that title. Right. And, but then you have something like Glee. Glee does like a kind of Fleetwood Mac episode. And all of a sudden it even raises higher on the bestseller charts. Right. And then you had even just a few years ago, this kind of, I guess he was a homeless guy on TikTok, you know, riding a skateboard or whatever, uh, drinking a punch and and Dreams is playing. And all of a sudden, all these Gen Z kids start buying Fleetwood Mac again, and it gets in the top 10 again, and it raises even higher on the bestseller charts. So you see that this this album just won't go away. And so obviously, as far as evals go, I doubt we're going to short this. You know, I really would be shocked if one of us did that. But I just wanted to talk about it because this is an example of how this conceit can play out. You know, obviously we have recent Stranger Things um, boosting of Kate Bush, right? Kate Bush hit number one for the first time in the in the United States ever. Right. You know, with running up the, running that hill, and that was a huge. That was her biggest American hit anyway. But this show, you know, brought it back and made it an absolute phenomenon. And there's there's a whole series of these, but those are kind of three of the biggest examples. And Rumors is probably the biggest of all. I mean. It has benefited from this kind of, you know, uh, reappraisal and, you know, um, kind of resurrection more than anything. And so I think that's why it's a good episode. It's also if if I kind of calculated it right based on when we're recording this and when we're going to release this, this is going to be our Valentine's Day episode for 2023. Uh, it's going to be close to that. So I, I can't think of a more perfect one for that. Indeed. So with that. Yeah, that's just all I wanted to say and and bring that up because the original conceit just is such it, it just more applies here than almost for any other show we've ever done. Yeah, no, a hundred percent agree. And so let's get into it. Let's talk about our personal histories. Uh, why don't you go first? Where did this come into your existence and knowledge and life? Right. So we've uh, on a couple of other episodes, I think mainly in the summer, I've mentioned my stepmom's crazy eight track collection. So my stepmother, Anne, was 13 years younger than my dad. So she liked a lot of the contemporary music of the time. And he was into it, too. I mean, everybody loved this album. This wasn't like something that some people really I can't if people hated it, they were probably just these maybe some punkers, you know, but of my dad's generation, you know, of the kind of 30 somethings and my stepmom was a 20 something and her taste tended toward more soft rock. She liked Steely Dan and, and Loggins and Messina was like her favorite band, uh, favorite group. And so, you know, she had stuff like that, but she also had kind of the Beach Boys, the nostalgic thing, because that was huge in the early 70s. So she had kind of like stuff like Heart and Cat Stevens. Yep. And she had the 1975 album, Fleetwood Mac, the White Album, they call it, yep. um, on 8-track, but she also had Rumors. And I just remember... Also, I just remember this being everywhere on the radio, right? We talked about this on our AM Gold episode, how we couldn't really talk about the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, but they were probably the two most dominant and the Bee Gees, which we'll talk about in a bit when we talk about major comebacks. Right. Um, but, you know, those three bands were just dominating the radio, the pop radio of like 77, um, 78. And uh, I just love this stuff right away. I mean, it was so catchy. Um, I liked all of it uh, pretty much. And I was sort of familiar with some of the album cuts. And as I would listen, grow up and transition from AM Gold to FM Gold, obviously the chain, you know, that's an FM Gold song. That's much more of an FM radio song uh, than than an AM radio song, right? Yep. And so, uh, and I remember, I also remember Tusk and how weird I thought that was yeah. right when that came out. I remember the video with the USC marching band. I was really into USC because my dad was really into USC. And also there was this thing in sixth grade where 
all the kids would like wear their USC shirts every Friday or something. And I, it's so weird because I'm just not a sports guy at all. But as a kid, it was kind of cool to be into sports. So I was kind of into, into that. And for some reason, USC, maybe, I don't know, the Rams were pretty good then. They actually went to the Super Bowl, I think, in 1980. So, But USC was for popular some reason we, and, and doing well then too. Yeah, yeah, but USC was like, yeah, just dominating a call. I don't know why they were so cool to us. Maybe the Trojan thing and the Warrior thing. But anyway, I just remember seeing the video for Tusk really early on. And I remember... Um, you know, the, the, how weird I thought it was. Yeah. At Dodger and, stadium um, is where they filmed it. Right. Right. And, and my uncle, um, my uncle Roger, who's like a big influence on my life. This is my really close to my cousin, Greg, and that's his father. And he was always really into music and he had all these cool records. And I remember he had like Fleetwood Mac records. I'd never heard of at the time. He had all the Bob Welch stuff. He had actually worked at Warner brothers as kind of a janitor maintenance guy, uh, before he moved on to the, the, uh, moved on to, a bore on California, which I mentioned before too, and worked in the mines, but he, he was, he had a job at Warner Bros. So he got all this free swag, you know, all these albums and he had all these Bob Welcher albums of Fleetwood Mac. And he was, he's always really been into the blues. So he liked all the early stuff too, which we'll be talking about the history of Fleetwood Mac and how the rumor stuff may seem like the craziest period, but it actually is, is really kind of normal uh, for the band. They had tons of crazier shit actually happen in their history. But I just remember him having those records and not even knowing what they were. Um, and then obviously I remember when Mirage came out, you know, um, I mean, I thought, you know, I was like 12, just seeing puberty. I thought Stevie Nicks was like the hottest thing going, <laughs> you know, when she came out gypsy, I was like pretty much like all into that, you know, from a teenage boy perspective. <laughs> That's funny. And, um, and I loved Hold On, too. I thought that was a great song. I still think that might be my favorite Christine McVie song. It's tough. She has such a good such a good catalog of songs. I mean, I really love, Book love of Christine love McVie. Book on that album is a great song by Lindsay, too. Yeah, I love Lindsay stuff on that yeah. record. I think it's a solid record. You know, I really like uh, all that stuff, too. I didn't buy any of these records at the time. The only ones I really would end up getting uh, would be Rumors in 1975 for a long time. You know, and I, I have a lot more of them now, and we'll go into that in a minute. But, um, you know, obviously, uh, Tango came out. I did not like it at the time. I thought it was a little adult contemporary, but my roommate, Evan, had it on tape because he was working at, like, the warehouse, and he got all these tapes. And he played, like, we were really into some of the Lindsay stuff. This yeah. was before the Cult of Lindsay thing, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but... He played like Caroline and stuff. And I'm like, actually, this is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I thought I thought the album cuts. I didn't like the singles. They were too adult contemporary. Now I love all of it. Yeah. You know, I absolutely love Tango and the Night. It's probably my third favorite after the 1975 and Rumors um, right now. I mean, it's tough. I, I really think they have a lot of great albums. I think Mirage and Tusk are both really interesting and great. Uh, but Tango is just very consistent, even though it's got that kind of late 80s production. I think it's held up pretty damn well. And it actually is their second most popular album next to Rumors. Um, a very distant second, but still, you know, a blockbuster record. And it's, I think, millennials and Gen Z actually might even like it as much. Yep. You know, it's it's one of these albums that's like you hear uh, everywhere on car commercials. And, you know, those songs like Little Lies, they just won't go well, away. Big Love is a, still a big hit. Right. Yeah. Big love is another, that was a, that was a, I mean, those were all top 10 singles, those three, those three. And then you had seven wonders as well. Stevie Nicks kind of best song on that record. Yeah. I, um, I agree and, by the way, that's a really good one too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great record. Now I missed the whole don't stop Clinton thing because I was in Japan at the time. So I didn't even watch the, uh, 
I mean, I was obviously a liberal and I was happy that Bush was going away and I was into Clinton and all that at the time, uh, I guess. You know, I just wasn't political at all. So I didn't really care. And I didn't watch the convention or anything. So I was in Japan when all that went down. So I missed the kind of reunion performance. I'm sure Jeff will talk more about that because he was in the country. I'm sure he had some things to say. But but I missed that. But But what ended up happening was I have two friends who are super into Lindsey Buckingham. Uh, one of them was my friend, Brad Haig, who was always into Lindsey. He was really into the Brian Wilson 1988 album that Lindsey's a Brian and, and Lindsey fanatic. The other one's Jeff, right? Yeah. So I really got more into Fleetwood Mac again when Jeff started introducing me to Lindsey's solo records, mainly Out of the Cradle, which is a total, well, probably his best solo record. It's, it's a, a great album. Yeah, if you haven't yeah, listened to it, go listen to it. It's his best solo by far. I mean, it's interesting, too, because we'll, we might touch on this more, but Tango was actually originally going to be a Lindsay solo album, and it kind of morphed into him bringing in the band and their songs. But, uh, you know, obviously he was working up to to this out of the cradle. And I think it's generally regarded as one of his his best works. And 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 we were really into that. Jeff sent I think he sent it to me when I was in Japan. Yep. Um, and I was really into it. I listened to it all the time. I thought it was just great. It was just like a all the great Lindsay Rex songs on like Tusk or, you know, Rumors or these other Fleetwood Mac albums, but just all put together into one album. It was just really great. And then, uh, you know, I didn't really think about them that much. I always liked them. I never stopped really liking them. Uh, you know, uh, they were never one of my top bands. Uh, but Lindsay was, when I got into Lindsay, I started to think Fleetwood Mac might be one of my favorite bands, you know, mainly because I kind of recognized, oh, okay, this is like, Pet, you know, because Pet sounds around the same time. Jeff was also the one who kind of introduced me to that, even though my friend Brad in parallel was already into it, you know, and we were we were more into the early Beach Boys. But then when Jeff got Pet Sounds on CD, I was like, holy shit, you know, this is really one of those records where I kind of went, is this the best album ever made? It might be, yeah. you know, like in rumors, I'll talk about how this time around I kind of had the same thought, you know, I was like this might be the best thing ever. You know, um, I've had that thought a few times over the years, but, um, but anyway, after this though, my friend Pam was really into Bob Welch. Uh, you know, I have this friend Pam who's a total music nerd. She has a podcast too, and I'll link to it on Instagram. And, you know, she's really turned me on to a lot of music over the years. And she was really into the Bob Welch era, Fleetwood Mac. And, um, it was funny because my uncle also had French Kiss by Bob Welch, which me and my cousin used to make fun of. Because if you see the album cover, it's hilarious. And it's kind of this disco rock. And, and Lindsey Buckingham, Christine McVie, and Stevie Nicks are all on that record, too. Um, and it has Sentimental Lady, the remake of Sentimental Lady, which was a big hit. I love this album now. It's like a great, I think it's a great album. I love his guitar work. I love Bob Welch, just his sound. And so I started getting into this. She had Bear Trees, which is top five Fleetwood Mac record for me. Um, I actually love this era, um, especially with Danny Kerwin and Bob Welch. I love both of them. I don't think it's anywhere near the Lindsay era, but I do the Lindsay Nicks era, but I do think it's second, my second favorite. And I really like these uh, future games, bear trees. So I started buying these because they're really easy to find. No one cared about these fucking albums. So I have all of them, you know, and, um, uh, you know, I ended up getting all of them. And then I also discovered Then Play On, which was the last album with Peter Green that features Danny Kerwin and Peter Green. I'm actually a big Danny Kerwin booster, too. Uh, I think his stuff with the band is amazing. And Then Play On is is fantastic. I, you know, we'll talk about the early Fleetwood Mac and what we think of it. I'm not really into the blues stuff so much, but Then Play On's kind of a weird, almost like Jethro Tull. There's blues, but there's kind of a folky element. 
And it's kind of more psych. It's almost more of a low key indie psychedelic record. And I really like that album a lot. Um, and then obviously there was the whole TikTok thing. I didn't pay attention when the Glee thing came around. I read about it recently and there's a whole TikTok thing. And my niece is really into Fleetwood Mac. She's a total Stevie Nicks acolyte. Uh, just like a lot of young women are. I mean, Stevie Nicks, we'll talk about, is the real superstar of this band That's by true. far. It's yeah. not even close. It's not even close, even though we're like of the cult of Lindsay and we love his, I don't think Stevie Nicks' songs would be what they are without him. And she's even said that many times. Um, she's the superstar, right? She's the she's the big star of the band. She's the rock here. And, um, you know, my niece is super in it and my, my uh my brother, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law took her out to, to see uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac, you know, on the most recent tour. So that's kind of my whole deal with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Um, my personal history is, is similar in a sense that this album, when it came out, was just one of those ubiquitous wallpaper albums of the 70s, right? You couldn't go into somebody's house without seeing the Rumors album cover there, which we'll talk about. It's very iconic. Um, with Mick Fleetwood and Stevie Nicks on it and, and Mick having a pair of wooden balls dangling uh, from his uh, uh, a waist there, which will f- figure prominently in the rest of this podcast, as you'll hear. But this album was ubiquitous. Hotel California obviously was too. Frampton Comes Alive. All these were just in every house um, you you know I went into, except my own. Because as I've talked about in the past, um, my mom's musical taste is pretty much the worst on the planet. And in my house, (laughs) instead of Hotel California and and Rumors and Frampton Comes Alive, what we had was Ice Castles, Captain and Tennille, and Johnny Mathis, which uh, is a big pile of poo. So, you know, that's what I had in my house. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, I heard these songs everywhere, heard these songs on the radio I don't remember. I was trying to think the first time I actually got a Fleetwood Mac album. And I think it might have been a tape of rumors. Um, I I mentioned this in an earlier podcast that I inherited this massive box of cassette tapes from my cousin. um, And she, when she got into punk, she gave me all her rock albums. Um, And I think Fleetwood Mac rumors was in there. I I don't recall uh, precisely, but I heard it. You know, I heard the music early on, but I actually had rumors, I think. And then I got into the the White Album and, and the rest of it. Um, as far as earlier Fleetwood Mac, uh, you mentioned Bob Welsh and Danny Kerwin, and you mentioned Peter Green. I'm a big Peter Green fan as a guitarist. I think he's one of the greatest guitarists ever. Um, and if, if for that style, right? I, I mean, there, there's a particular blues style of the late 60s. Um, you know, the Eric Clapton, uh, I think, would be the king of that mountain uh, in terms of the strike blues. But I mean, all the famous guitarists that you know of came from that era. Of course, Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and those sorts of folks, too. Right. So um, and overall, I think my favorite rock guitarist is Jimmy Page, which I'm sure we'll get into at, at a later time. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we definitely will. Um, so anyway, th- these songs have always been part of my my life and and I just can't remember a time when I didn't think of them. I was never a Stevie. I never had a thing for Stevie Nicks. She was not really my thing, but um, maybe I had a thing for Lindsay. I don't know. I always kind of dug his, his crazy hair, um, which uh, was, if you look at the, our podcast uh, art, you know, my hair is very similar to that. Right. So uh, maybe mm-hmm. I, I, I liked, uh, I liked that. Um, Dude, I see a <laughs> Halloween costume on the horizon. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, you as Lindsay and and uh, your wife as uh, Stevie. Yeah, Nicks. you can funny. totally do it, dude. You I'd guys totally can totally do it. Do it. Yep. She could put a little white powder around her nostrils, you know, really, yeah. really, because it's like, who's that? Is that some hippie girl? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the white it's powder Stevie around Nicks. her nostrils. It's, it's definitely, then it's definitely Stevie Nicks. It would be funny to do. Um, well, okay. See, we, we missed, we missed the boat here. Well, maybe we didn't, maybe we didn't, maybe by the time this comes out, the artwork for CFX will be a recreation of the Buckingham Nicks album with us on it. Oh, dude. Oh, my God. That's that. Yeah. All right. Okay. We're going to make that happen. Yeah. We're going to make that happen. That would actually be fucking hilarious. Or, yeah. or or the real cover of Rumors where one of us is Mick and one of us is Stevie. That could also yeah, That's work. a good idea. Well, well, we'll see what well, we can do. I need to talk to our art department because, you know, she has to do all this. Uh, and, yeah. You know, yeah. Anyway. So let's talk about the zeitgeist and setting the stage, and we'll kind of alternate back and forth here. I'll I'll kick it off by just talking about that. You know, the seventies here um, were interesting, uh, as we keep talking about. There's that sexy seventies theme that keeps coming back again and again and again. Uh, most recently, in um, you know, we are talking about this, and of course, in our game show episodes and all the prior ones as well. Um, one of the things about the music industry of the 70s is it became a huge business. It wasn't like it was not a huge business in the 60s with the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. But the just the craziness and the excess of the 70s music business was off the charts. And I want to play a little clip of Lindsay talking about that because I think he, he mentions this in an interesting way. Well, you really have to address it in terms of the times and the times were just a lot crazier um there was a sense of expansiveness in the business of anything being possible uh of budgets not being important uh and certainly there was a subculture of drugs that was considered almost the norm in the business back then as opposed to today where it's a bit more of an aberration i like these drugs Drugs. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you wanted to talk about the sexy 70s thing and Brian Wilson, so go for it. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, the zeitgeist, the, the kind of era we're in is the is the excesses of the 70s, as he mentioned. And obviously, you know, this album, I mean, it's like it, it's kind of in that same sexy 70s. You know, it's a it's 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 about, you know, love and lust and betrayal and obviously there's lyrics like shacking up packing up shacking up is all you want to do right you know it's it's um you know and we'll have a little more to talk more in depth about what really went on behind the scenes later um but but yeah there was a lot of uh a a lot of sexual stuff going on in in this uh era right um you had like uh Stevie Nicks and, and, and Mick Fleetwood even having an affair. So it seemed like everybody was fucking everybody. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's also this, this whole zeitgeist of this idea of pop craft, you know, it starts with really starts probably mostly with Phil Spector, right. Um, his kind of production and really paying attention to production. And then you have, you know, Brian Wilson, obviously doing that with Pet Sounds and even George Martin with the Beatles doing, you know, they they work together on Sgt. Pepper. Just this idea of taking pop and crafting it to the extent of where it kind of becomes more of a, a of an art. And, um, you know, that 
and Lindsey Buckingham was definitely part of that whole thing. He absolutely worshipped Brian Wilson and kind of saw himself in that role. And we'll, as we'll talk about during our kind of evaluation slash celebration slash uh, exploration section on rumors, we'll talk about stuff he did and, and, and that made the songs better, right? And, and that even goes up to someone like Mutt Lang, you know, who I'm sure we'll cover in a future episode or two, uh, who just... You know, to, when he when he worked with ACDC and Def Leppard, he just turned them up a notch as far as their abilities. Uh, Bob Ezrin, too, I would put in that category. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's these these kind of behind the scenes guys who who can basically do a lot of studio wizardry and clever things to make the songs like come almost like take a two dimensional song and turn it into three dimensions. Right. Like just basically expand it. And we'll talk about that because that is all over rumors. And it kind of led me to kind of my thoughts about rumors versus the 1975 wide album, and which I'll talk about during my section of the evaluations. Um, and then obviously you have advances in recording. I mean, that these albums still sound great today. I mean, the bit though, obviously the pinnacle of this and the one that everyone talks about when they talk about a great sounding record is dark side of the moon, which was engineered by Alan Parsons. Another one of these guys who was brilliant. You know, you had a genius like Roger Waters working together with him I mean, that album still sounds absolutely incredible. You have the work of Steely Dan. I mean, when you go to a stereo store and they have vinyl records, you're going to see Asia there. You know, that's yeah. this is this is the album we're going to demonstrate how good this this system sounds, right? When you're dealing with these hundred thousand dollar stereo systems, which I've had the pleasure of listening to some of these records on because my uncle Raj has these friends who have the stereo room. So I was like, once once I walked in there, I'm like, the first thing I wanted to hear was Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. I wish I would have listened to Rumors on there. Yeah. You know, because it's another one that just sounds, I mean, it sounds so incredible. And we'll talk a little about the recording and how crazy it was um, that it actually ended up sounding as good as it did. Um, I also put Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark on here. That's an album that's like, you know, it's very, very polished, you know, kind of a, a, a level up from what she was doing, the more kind of intimate and acoustic sounds. I mean, obviously, Blue is a great sounding record, too, but it's much more intimate. Court and Spark, you've got these the L.A. Express on there. You know, you've got these session musicians and it's just um, a beautiful sounding album. And, you know, just the, just, you know, the advances in recording in the early 70s just led to this uh, era where I think albums sound better than they ever had did before. And they ever have since, to be honest, because I just don't like the Pro Tools kind of shit they do now. I just don't think it sounds as great as like uh, organic recording. And the 80s, it's just too much technology, I think, for me. Um, I think the 70s is like the sweet spot of recording. Yeah. Um, I just love it. Yeah. And and if you want to hear for yourself the kind of things we're talking about, just listen to the late 60s uh, records of like Cream and The Who and those type of, ba those type of bands. And they sound like absolute shit in comparison, like listen to the drum sounds of Keith Moon and Ginger Baker. And they're so flat and they're so two dimensional and they, they just sound so sonically compressed um, as compared to albums that were recorded, you know, four or five years later, or, you know, obviously. Yeah. Beyond. You could compare something like, I mean, I love the who sell out. It's probably like my, I probably like it more than who's next. I think it's a masterpiece. But it's like you compare that sound to who's next and it's like night and day, like who's next sounds way better. Yeah. Right? It's not even close. And um, a part of that is I think a lot of those 60s records sound better in mono. I mean, I have all the Beatles records in mono and I actually prefer Sgt. Pepper's in mono to stereo. I just think it, it I just don't think stereo was really 
Um, I mean, there are probably exceptions to this. There are probably, I mean, I think Abbey Road is an exception, but that's almost like a 70s sounding record. That's one of the reasons I love Abbey Road so much is it sounds like a 70s record. The the, the technology to improve by then. Yep. But yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, you know, when you listen to Cream, it just doesn't sound as big and full and rich, even though the musicianship is unparalleled right. on those records. I mean, Ginger Baker's one of the greatest of all time. Jack Bruce, Eric Clapton, you've got these three titans, each one of the best on their instruments. And you just, you know, it it's it sounds doesn't sound as good as a 70s record would. Well, I think particularly in my estimation in the bass, right? So yeah. uh, if you listen to the cream sounds, the guitar sounds pretty good, but the drums, I mean, the, the bass guitar sounds very kind of muddy. Um, and it's a shame because as you just mentioned, Jack Bruce is one of the greatest bassists ever. But the, right. to me, I was listening to uh, Disraeli Gears recently. I'm sure we'll get to that album and other cream albums. And the drums just sound like complete garbage. Yeah. And, and it's just a shame. It, there's no no knock on anybody. The technology wasn't really available then. And even, I mean, I think the Beatles took it to the act, absolute pinnacle of what was possible with that equipment. And they were still limited too, right? Um, and, and so I think in early 70s, in the early 70s time period, um, it really did change. Uh, and the bands you mentioned were on top of that, obviously, uh, Pink Floyd and, and Steely yeah. Dan and all that. Yeah, I think this is going to be contentious for people because I think people would bring up, oh, Pet Sound sounds great, you know, Sgt. Pepper. I mean, they they could bring up some 60s albums that definitely sound great. And I think some of these albums, like, I, as I mentioned in mono, like, I heard uh, what Axis Bold is Love on this really good station. Uh, I mean, this really good stereo room I was talking about in mono, and it blew my mind. Like, I just thought this sounded so incredible. But but I, I think, you know, people could could argue this. I think there could be another side to this, but I, I, in general, I just like the warmth and the fullness of the seventies sound. Yeah. Uh, that's just my sweet spot. And I think other people may disagree, but then, you know, you also have like this era is right after, right after the big boom and singer songwriters, like you have Joni Mitchell, you have uh, James Taylor, you have, you know, Cat Stevens, Carol King kind of coming into her own, these very like personal songs, right. Yep. It's much more centered around, relationships and you know intimacy and love and all this but in a really sophisticated way and rumors is definitely kind of on top of that as well it's like piggybacking off of that and it's it's i mean the songs on rumors are as good as any of those other songwriters best work and it's also very intimate i mean especially someone like christine McBee who was doing this for years but just didn't have that magic touch that needed to put her songs over the edge i mean all all her songs during the bob welch era i think are really great they're just not of the same level, maybe because of the sound and because of the of the mixing. Um, and then you have the whole California sound, you know, Laurel Canyon. We mentioned Joni Mitchell. She was part of that, you know, and you have the Eagles, which, again, were vying. It was like a battle between the two. And actually, the Eagles, their greatest hits album is right now the biggest selling album of all time. So they were absolutely huge. Hotel California was huge. I mean, the, they were kind of vying with each other for the for the awards and the Grammys and stuff. So they were the main rivals. Um, and they were all part of that California sound, even though Fleetwood Mac was originally British. Um, they had moved to L.A. in the Bob Welch era. And you can actually hear some of the California, because Bob Welch was born in L.A. You could hear some of the California sound in his stuff, like Hypnotize, which is kind of a soft rock should have been a big hit in my mind. It's a great song from the album Mystery to Me. Didn't do anything here um, or anywhere. You know, none of the Bob Welch era stuff did. And it's, you know, 
to be honest, a lot of that stuff is pretty spotty. You know, it's not like the albums are, a couple of the albums are really good. And then a couple of them just are kind of like maybe one or two songs are good, but um, they were all part of that kind of smooth rock California sound. And I think once Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks came in, that they really moved toward that completely, right? right? There was no doubt, right? And and they perfected it. Now, I also want to talk about this whole idea of a comeback because, you know, we've heard, we've talked about comebacks before. Obviously, we haven't done an episode on Aerosmith yet. We will, but they had a huge comeback in the 80s and Heart as well, where these bands actually became bigger than they ever were, right? So it was a comeback because they had had their heyday in the 70s, but then they became bigger than they ever were. Well, this era had the two biggest comebacks, I think, of all time, inarguably. I don't think, I mean, I might be forgetting some, but I don't think anything compares to these two. One is Fleetwood Mac, right? Fleetwood Mac was actually big in England. They 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 were a success from the get-go in the UK. Their first couple albums were top 10 albums. I mean, they had tons of hit singles with the Peter Green era, like Black Magic Woman. We'll talk more about that in the history. Um, but they became with 19 Fleetwood Mac 1975 and even more so with rumors, they became bigger than they ever were. And the other comeback happened a year later, the Bee Gees, yep. right? Around the same year. So the Bee Gees had all these hits, like how can you mend a broken heart, which is like number one song, right? They had the lonely days, you know, they had all these hits in the sixties um, and the early seventies, they were kind of a soft beat, softer version of the Beatles, kind of a more soft rock version of the Beatles. They had these massive hits. Saturday Night Fever, that, I mean, they start and actually they both had to come back in 75 because the Bee Gees had main course with Jive Talk and, you know, uh, Nights on Broadway. And th- that was huge. And then they had a, uh, another album and then they had uh, Saturday Night Fever. And that became the biggest selling album of all time until Thriller took over. And that I can't argue that there's a bigger comeback than that. But the other one, Fleetwood Mac, is just as big. Yeah. So those bands became bigger than they ever were and became more known for this era of music than any other era of music. So even though people remember the BG stuff fondly in the sixties, people are into the blues stuff of Fleetwood Mac in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, they became way more known for this era of music. And that, and that kind of became what made them hall of famers really. Um, I don't think either of those bands would be in the rock and roll hall of fame without these comebacks. I mean, they might be eventually, you know, is also ran kind of, but I doubt it. Uh, I, I even agree. though, even though Peter Green is like this guitar legend and and people look fondly on those records, I just don't think they would be at the same level. Um, and so that's, that's the last thing I wanted to talk about with the zeitgeist. Okay. Yeah, no, makes sense. So the history of Fleetwood Mac, as you alluded to, is quite uh, convoluted and interesting. So why don't we uh, get into that a little bit here? Yeah, so what we're going to do with Fleetwood Mac is I'm not going to go back into the complete background of every band member because that would be insane. There's been so many lined up changes and stuff like that. So I'm really going to kind of center it around the main person in the band. Now, musically, he's not the main person in the band, but he is the leader of the band, and that is Mick Fleetwood. He is the only member who was there the whole time. Uh, John McVie was mostly there the whole time, but he left... He kind of didn't. Well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about the John McVie joining uh, Fleetwood Mac and how that worked. But, you know, uh, Mick Fleetwood, you know, grew up in the UK. He was a a dyslexic kid. He wasn't good at school. He ended up dropping out really early when he was like 15. Um, You know, he basically been uh, he basically uh, seen someone play drums and decided to play drums. And, you know, his sister kind of older sister took him to these clubs and he was able to play 
you know, kind of in a pickup band style and also watch other bands. He was practicing drumming when this guy, Peter Bardens, came by, uh, who, who lived nearby. And Peter Bardens would later be with a band I really like, a prog band called Camel. Um, and he basically joined, they joined together in a band called the, the Shanes. And the Shanes actually ended up touring with the Rolling Stones around the UK for a, a short period of time. So Mick Fleetwood was really young when he got started. Um, and, you know, he very shortly, he started dating, also started dating a woman who was kind of part of the, I guess, rock star groupie royalty, right? Jenny Boyd, who was the sister of um, Patty Boyd, who would become Patty Boyd Harrison, then Patty Boyd Harrison Clapton. Um, you know, so they were like kind of models and he started dating her. Um, and then he got, he was in a band for a while uh, called Shotgun Express that had a young singer named Rod Stewart. So all these band guys were kind of playing and it was a blues scene. You know, that was what was popular. The Rolling Stones being the most popular, but there were all these other guys in the scene like, uh, you know, Rod Stewart. And he played with, with Peter Green in that band. And then both of them ended up joining Peter Green, who was this amazing guitar prodigy, ended up joining the kind of premier blues band of the time, other than the, the Stones were kind of more pop at this point. But the premier blues, kind of the respected blues band was the John Mayall's Blues Breakers. And like we talked about in the Motley Crue episode with London being an yeah, incubator. I was just going to say right? that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was like almost every guitar hero of the seventies went through this band. Yeah. I mean, you had Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Peter Green, uh, Jimmy you know, Page. The, Jimmy, oh, Jimmy Page played with them. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, okay. It might've been for a short time. Very I didn't short time. Know that yeah. He played them. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, everybody kind of went through this band. You also had like, uh, you know, musicians like Jack Bruce was in there. And then, of course, the bassist at the time that Peter Green and Mick Fleet would join uh, was John McVie. Right. And he he's he's the oldest member of Fleetwood Mac. And he was, um, you know, played bass for a while, but eventually got into the Blues Breakers. And it was a real coveted gig because they were just so respected. I mean, it's not like they had such big hits, but they were popular and they were respected. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, oh, I forgot. I think I, did I mention Eric Clapton? I should, he's yeah. kind of the biggest one. Yeah, um, no, you did. I think. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so they were, they were playing together in the blues breakers, but, uh, you know, at one point, I think there, there, there was this kind of confusion around this, that McBee and McFleetwood were really drunken, you know, all the time drinking and they were kind of kicked out of the blues breakers, but they got pulled back in and, uh, Peter Green kind of wanted to get away out of John Mayall's shadow and he wanted to form his own thing. And he ended up just having a jam session with the three of them. And one of the one of the things they jammed on was this instrumental they just improved on the spot. And he ended up calling it Fleetwood Mac, which was named after the two guys, right, in the rhythm section. And essentially, that's how they got the band name. Originally, John McBee didn't join. They actually had a guy named um, Bob Brunning play bass on the first album. But John McVie plays on some of the tracks, so it's weird. So he was not really an original member, but he very shortly became a member because he was kind of like, well, the Blues Breakers are a good gig, and he was trying to get back in John Mayall's graces for a while. So he didn't officially join, but he's on the first album. He's on the majority of the first album, but this guy Bob Brunning sat in. They were popular right from Peter. They were called Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. That was what the debut was called. They were popular right from the get-go in the UK. Uh, the album was number four on the charts. Um, they, you know, they had hit singles and stuff like that. 
the second album, Mr. Wonderful, is kind of more of the same. They also had another guy join named Jeremy Spencer, who was more of a slide guitarist and was much more. It's kind of funny when you listen to this first album, he's kind of more prominent in the mix. Like you kind of hear his guitar more. But Peter Green is much more of a finesse player. And, you know, he's so, so unique. Like his songwriting style is, I could see why it was a big deal. I'm not that much of a fan of this stuff. I'm just not that into that kind of blues thing, but I can respect it. And I can see why he was such a unique player. Cause he wasn't like super flashy, like a lot of these guys, but just in terms of technique, you know, you could, you could see the the chops there, you know? And so, so, and then they had Danny Kerwin join because, uh, you know, Peter Green wrote all the songs and he was, he was kind of frustrated. Jeremy Spencer didn't really seem interested in songwriting. He was more interested in doing covers and stuff like that. So he brought in Danny Kerwin, who was like a fan of the band who'd followed them all around. And I'm a real big fan of this guy. I think he added a lot to their sound. Um, one of the things he did was he helped write this song called Albatross, which is a really weird instrumental that sounds nothing like the rest of their catalog. But it became, it was like, I think it was shown on this documentary on BBC and people started calling the BBC and like, what is that song? And it eventually became a number one song, became their first number one song in England. They were, by the way, they were doing very little in the US. They went to Chicago after this to record with uh, Chess Records was folding and Fleetwood Mac wanted to go record the you know, one of the last records at Chess Records with all their blues heroes. So they did this. Um, they traveled to the U.S., but they really didn't make much of an impact in the U.S. at all. Uh, then they recorded Then Play On. This is the record that Mick Fleetwood says is his favorite album the band ever did. Uh, I own this record. I love this record. This is my favorite of this era. I like it way more than the first two records. Um, it's kind of a interesting mix of stuff. Have you ever listened to this one? I don't think so. I would recommend checking it out because it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of dark and mysterious and it has a well, which is, you know, a, a big hit. And they I've would later that, cover yeah. that with, yeah, you and there's the live Fleetwood Mac live version, right? Yeah. The live album that came out uh, during the, after Rumors, um, or maybe it was after Tusk. It was like that live album they did and and Lindsay does a really great version of this. Um, I also really like World Turning, which is an original song of the Peter Green era that they did on the 75 album. I think that the Lindsay version is way better. Like it's just more rocking. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, because again, Peter green, it's pretty low key stuff. You know, it's not super heavy. Um, but you know, it's, it's really cool. Uh, you know, other singles, they had black magic woman, man of the world. And Oh, well was a big hit in the UK as well. So then play on did pretty well. Uh, number six, right. Okay, but this is where the band starts to fall apart for the first time. And I would argue this is kind of crazier than some of the rumor stuff because Peter Green, he basically, they were hanging out at this German commune when they were on tour and he did some acid and it just fucked him up. Yeah. Like, you know, it, he's like one of those guys who probably had innate mental problems and say if you have like, like schizophrenia in your family, yeah. like Sid Barrett, right? Yeah. And acid was just the trigger that just set yeah. all that off. And same with Brian Wilson. You yeah. could argue the same thing with Brian Wilson, right? Um, and so he kind of went nuts and he had a kind of mental breakdown and he said the band should just quit and give up all their money. Uh, of course, the rest of the band members didn't agree with this. So they kind of decided to trudge on without him. Now, during the first two albums, the first three albums, they had this woman who was actually a pretty renowned blues singer in her own right named Christine Perfect. And she uh, was with the band called Chicken Shack. And I remember, and I, you know, I remember reading that like Melody Maker had like a award for like best female singer. And so she was already, she won that, you know, during this time. So she was already kind of known on her own. 
uh, she ended up hooking up with John McBee. I think after like five weeks or something, they were married. Um, and so she became Christine McBee. And she played keyboards on the first Fleetwood Mac album. She was just kind of a guest session player. Um, and then she had recorded a solo record that did nothing. It bombed. So she decided to join the band um, as a regular member. And she actually did the cover art of the next album, which is called Kiln House. And this album is like a weird album. So it's got some cool kind of Danny Kerwin instrumental stuff, but it's mostly dominated by uh, Spencer, who's like really into like rockabilly. So it's this album, let's just face it, this is my least favorite album they ever did. Uh, well, until Lindsay left, and then we'll talk about those later albums. And But this is one of their worst albums. Uh, she did the cover art, which is kind of cool, but she doesn't really have a presence on this album. I mean, she plays on it, but she doesn't, you know, we don't see her as a songwriter yet. Um, and uh, during a U.S. tour, you know, this album did nothing, by the way. This was a bomb in the U.K. without Peter Green. They just bombed. It did nothing in the U.S. But during a U.S. tour, um, they were playing and Jeremy Spencer said, I'm going to go out and get a, you know, a magazine or something. And he left and he never came back. <laughs> and so they were like, they were like, what the hell? So they, so they basically yeah. kind of sent me, they called the police. They went looking for him. And it turned out he had met these members of this cult called the children of God. And this, <laughs> this group is like a set. They were like a sex cult, dude. They would have like, they would do this thing called I'm super into interested in cults. And so I know about them. They do this thing called flirty fishing where they have these cute girls go out and try to like, you know, kind of sexually flirt with guys to get them into the cult. And then they did stuff like they, you know, they would have families, but they would have sex in front of their kids. So there's all these like books from ex-members who grew up as kids who are completely traumatized by this terrible cult. And this guy is still in it. Really? He's still in it to this day. Yeah. If he's still alive, I think he's still alive. I, I shouldn't have done better research on that, but, but basically he's still in the cult. They're called a the family. Now they're much more low key. They don't do all the sex stuff, but there's like, the guy, Dave Berg, who ran it, it was actually run out of where my dad lived, Huntington Beach. It was like Orange County. Mm. Um, this guy died. So I think it, ever since he died, they kind of just became just weird, you know, Christians who believe the world is going to end every day. You know, but he's still kind of with them. He was just, he was nuts too. He was another crazy person. And he, yeah, he just dropped out of the band. I mean, he would visit them later on. And there's stories, like, I think it was in the... um Storm's book we both read by Caroline Harris, he visits them and yeah. she's like freaked out by him because he just won't talk and he's crazy. So anyway, the, what is the band going to do now? You know, they're, they're missing this guitarist. So they luckily they had a, a band secretary named Judy Wong actually went to high school with this guy, Bob Welch, who was a really good guitarist. So they brought him in. And this is like kind of the Welch Kerwin era. And they recorded an album called Future Games. And this is where you first start to see Kristen McBee have some songs on the on the records. And they're great. You know, it turns out it's weird. She was a blues player because she writes these love songs. Yeah. You know, these poppy. Yeah. it's just very strange. But um, I really love this album, Future Games, a lot. I mean, it's it's kind of moody and interesting. And I just like all of what Bob Welch, Danny Carwin and Christy. I think Christy McBee's songs on this record are good. Um, and, you know, but it did nothing. I mean, the, the old blues fans didn't like this new direction. I mean, it was kind of like they were still searching for a sound and didn't quite make it. And this only made number 91 in the US. It didn't do anything and it didn't even chart in the UK. Then they made an album called Bear Trees, which has probably most famously Sentimental Lady. It's also got some great Christine McVie uh, songs and Danny Kerwin songs. I absolutely love this album. I think it's like a lost classic, uh, probably one of my favorite Fleetwood Mac albums. Um, and it'll, but again, it never, 
it never did anything. Now, eventually, each of these albums would become gold and platinum, but that's only because of the strength of the Lindsay era. Yeah. People went back and bought them. At the time, they were just completely bombs. And so Kerwin at this time was fired for alcoholism. So, you know, he was he was really he argumentative must have been in the bad studio. If he got fired from Fleetwood Mac for abuse of substance. Dude, dude. I mean, it's like they just couldn't keep members. And yeah. it was just crazy. What's crazy about this era is that they survived at all. Yeah. I mean, because it gets worse, dude. It gets actually worse. Um, so Kerwin was fired. So they brought in another guy named Bob Weston, and they brought this other vocalist, Dave Walker, who sung with uh, another one of the blues kind of the blues boom of the late sixties. Savoy Brown was another big, another band. Um, he sang with them, but they brought them in. I recorded an album called Penguin. Again, this album isn't very good. I have it. It's, I never listened to this one. Uh, it was number 49. So it charted a little better, you know, with their touring and stuff. Um, but they were really struggling to stay afloat. I mean, I'm surprised the record label didn't just drop them right away. I mean, they were selling nothing. Uh, they followed that up with Mystery to Me, which is a little better. Um, and it's got this great song by Bob Welch called Hypnotize that I mentioned that should have been a hit. And it really sh- goes to show you how Welch kind of was the transition to what they would become, you know, because he's very much of that California sound. A lot of his stuff is more harder rocking, but some of his stuff like Hypnotize is really like that California sound. You know, it's like that easy listening kind of what I grew up with, KNX, you know, the mellow sound, as I mentioned on our AM Gold episode. Um, and, you know, but again, it didn't it didn't take off. You know, they were just struggling. Um, but what ended up happening is this guitarist, Bob Weston, ended up having an affair with Mick Fleetwood's wife. So this already, all the rumors kind of fucking each other thing started earlier. I, um, I, I want to just point out about that, that this, I'm sure it wasn't the first affair she had, but it wouldn't be the last and this, and, no. and she had many, many affairs. Um, it did Mick Fleetwood too, by the way. But I, yeah, I, he was fucking everybody too. I yeah, mean, it's like yeah. the seventies. I'm sure all these people were fucking around. Yeah. I mean, you know, as far as Christine McVie and John McVie's relationship at this time, I'm not aware of it, but I know he was a total alcoholic, and that's what would lead to the demise. But we'll talk about that more during the rumors era. But um, you can see there was already tension and volatility and drama in this band. I mean, we had two guys drop out because they were nuts. And then you had another guy get fired for alcoholism. And then another guy get kicked out for fucking the leader of the band's wife. And then it gets even weirder because um, what ended up happening is uh, Fleetwood Mac, I guess, were, you know, in turmoil. And they weren't going to tour. They, they weren't going to go on the next tour that their manager, Clifford Davis, wanted them to go on. Uh go on and so he ended up recruiting this other band that was called legs i guess they were just a bar band and he made a fake fleetwood mac (laughs) and he basically sent these guys out on the road and said this is fleetwood mac and obviously people in the audiences were starting to notice wait a minute this isn't fleetwood mac you know i don't see where's christine mcvee where's mc you know it was all these anonymous dudes and so he had done this to kind of recoup some money because he was just losing money on this band and so that's when Mick Fleetwood decided, I'm just going to manage the band. And he fired their manager. Um, and, you know, they were they were involved in lawsuits against him and stuff. And then, you know, they were trying to get their, their next album recorded, which was just with the four of them. You know, Christy McVie, Bob Welch, uh, John McVie and Mick Fleetwood called Heroes Are Defined. And it's not a very good album at all. Uh, but it was the first Fleetwood Mac album actually recorded in, in in the United States. So it was like they had completely relocated and become kind of a California band at this point, even before 
uh, you know, Lindsay and uh, Stevie had joined. And Bob Welch just got sick of all the drama and the lawsuits, and he just decided to quit. Um, so the band looked like it was all gonna, you know, all but over pretty much. But what ended up happening was uh, Mick Fleetwood ended up visiting Sound City and he visited Keith Olsen, who was uh, doing some work there as a producer. And he Keith Olsen Wait, happened to- uh, Cleaning up, waiting for Neil Giraldo to show up, clearly. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was really Neil Giraldo pulling yeah. the strings to, to Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. But he played them some cuts off of Buckingham Knicks. And he said, check out this guitarist. Um, and actually, I forgot to mention in my bio, this is really important. It's crazy. I forgot to mention in my, I'm going to mention it now. I forgot to mention in the late nineties, I started a website, you know, kind of like before there were blogs or whatever. And I wrote some fiction. And one of the stories I wrote was a make-believe story of the forming of Fleetwood Mac mock, I guess, three or four, you know, with uh, why Buckingham Knicks joined. And I wrote, it was kind of like a Yacht Rock style make-believe thing you know, a jokey thing that I wrote about the forming. And when I wrote the story, the story was that Mick Fleetwood saw the cover and he saw Stevie Nicks and he was just like, I want her to join. But he didn't care about Lindsay. Like he just wanted Stevie because he wanted to fuck her. So that was my story. You know, it's like, and and of course I, I wrote the song Crystal was all about the first time Lindsay brought a Stevie cocaine and she saw the crystals and, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I've had some people read, I, I don't even know where it is now, but that was like just the thing I wrote, you know, before Yacht Rock existed, I kind of had the same idea of like, I'm going to write, you know, a fictional account of something true. It was actually more based on those rock and roll comics, yeah, I think, because yeah. we were really into those. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, it was kind of funny. But the real true story is actually he was interested in Lindsay. He wasn't interested in Stevie Nicks um, because he heard his guitar playing and he thought this guy's a kick-ass guitarist and he liked the music. Um, and I think this is a good time to go into their background real quick. Uh, I'm not going to be as detailed. If you want to throw anything in here, you know you can. I didn't write much down. Lindsay Buckingham, you know, obviously grew up in Palo Alto, so California, Northern California. Uh, native and his whole family was like very athletic. They were all swimmers and his brother actually ended up winning a silver medal in the Olympics, but For, Lindsay, very wealthy family too. Yeah. They're wealthy, which yeah. also Stevie Nicks, right? Yeah. Uh, same thing. Um, so they were gold dust man and woman at this point, I guess, yeah. but, but you know, they were, they were well off. Right. But he was always into music from a really early age. Um, and he actually played in a band in high school and Stevie Nicks, she was, um, from a pretty wealthy family too. Her father was an executive for various companies, but one time Greyhound. So they had to relocate a lot. And they ended up being in the same place where Lindsay was at this point. And they ended up forming a band. The original name, I don't remember. It's like some Fritz, blah, 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 commemorative band, but it ended up being calling Fritz. And it was kind of a psychedelic band. So that's when they started working together. I think they were in high school, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like really early on. They were like high school sweethearts. But I don't think they actually got romantically involved right away, but eventually they did. I think they're Atherton High School or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He grew up in Atherton, yeah. not Palo Alto. Atherton, uh, yeah. which is even more. I mean, that's where like a lot of wealthy like Steve Jobs and these people lived. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a very wealthy area. Um, and uh, Barb's cousin grew up there, too, but not in the wealthy part, kind of in a more rural part. And I think when they grew up there, it was like it wasn't at Atherton back then was wealthy, but it wasn't as wealthy as it is now. Right. Like it's crazy now. Um, but, but at any rate, um, 
you know, like Mark Andreessen and these Silicon Valley clowns all live there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they ended up forming a duo, you know, out of the wreckage of Fritz. And they recorded an album, uh, Buckingham Nicks, which is most famous probably for its album cover than anything else, um, with a naked Stevie Nicks, who I guess was traumatized by the idea of being naked on the cover. And Lindsay telling her, hey, baby, it's art, man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's like an that album scene cover in that Fame seems like, with Irene Cara where he's like, come on. Oh, yeah, where she's like, she's like <laughs> taking off her shirt and crying. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, yeah. Jeez. Anyway, yeah. Stevie, here, I have another bump. Take off yeah. the top. Let's go. Uh, anyways, what's funny about this album is it was only popular in one place, which was Alabama. Um, so they had a following and there, and there, I think there's live recordings of them that exist now of Alabama. And, and there's been long talk of actually re-releasing this proper, um, this You remember album. when I got this album I, at, at the record store? Yeah, did, totally. Yeah. Totally. I remember you got it and it's actually pretty hard to find now yeah. for cheap. I mean, it, now it's become kind of a cult thing and, you know, you could like crystals on there, you know, you can, you can hear the beginnings of what they would do, um, with Fleetwood Mac. Okay, so they join Fleetwood Mac, and Fleetwood Mac's kind of at the bottom of the barrel here. And they record this album in 1975, the White Album. It takes forever to chart. You know, it's a slow burn. It took, it was on the, it was, uh, I mean, this album was still a hit album when Rumors was released because it took so long to chart. So it was released in 75, but it took 15 months to get to number one. But it ended up becoming the biggest selling album in Warner Brothers history. It was an absolute blockbuster. You got hits like Rhiannon, Say You Love Me, Over My Head, you know. Um, and turning. the whole album. Yeah. yeah, World Turning. I mean, the FM radio hit, I'm So Afraid. You know, great, great, great songs on this record. Um, you know, it didn't seem like this was toppable, really. At the time, um, you know, it was such a, 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 a mega album and so good. Um, it ended up becoming seven times platinum. And, uh, you know, just unparalleled success so they thought well how are we gonna follow this up um and that's where i'm gonna turn it over to you yeah so so rumors uh um, it was about cocaine it, it was about <laughs> cocaine and uh rumors started recording in february of 1976 at the record plant in sausalito which is in marin uh, county california um, they had been working with Buckingham and Nick's had been working with an engineer named uh, Richard Dassett, who was a friend of theirs. They lived with him too. Um, and in fact, Stevie Nicks tells stories about how she was cleaning houses uh, to make a living while Richard and Lindsay sat around writing songs and doing drugs, smoking weed, I guess. Uh, how they got her to do that, I'll never know. But um, they he had been an engineer uh, working on... Uh, with the band, especially for live stuff. So on the, the I think on the white uh, album, 75 album, obviously Keith Olsen was the engineer there, but I think uh, Richard Dassett was uh, the front of house engineer for a lot of their live stuff and would be with the band for a long time. They hired a producer named uh, Ken Calais um, to uh, be the producer of that uh, album, uh, Rumors as it was getting uh, put together. The original uh, working title of Rumors was actually called Yesterday's Gone. Um, if you might know the lyrics of many of the songs there, uh, that makes some sense. And it was at a time when, as we heard in the opening uh, 
from Lindsay directly, and you've probably heard the stories of this album many, many times. Everybody was breaking up. Uh, John and Christine McVie had just gotten divorced. Um, Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham were, if they hadn't officially broken up, they were pretty much right on the precipice of having broken up. Uh, Mick Fleetwood and and his wife Jenny were estranged uh, for a variety of reasons, including um, multiple affairs by both of them, which we'll, we'll talk about as we get into this a little bit more. Um, and the, the making of the album, again, as you heard from Lindsay, was just kind of crazy in terms of just a lot of heartache and a lot of challenge there, constant fighting, a lot of drug abuse as we're, you know, sort of poking some fun at acrimony. Um, the Self-indulgence in the sense that there was no sort of uh, controls on the recording time and process and budget. They basically could set up shop at the record plant, a very expensive recording studio. They had houses that they were all renting. Um, and there was really no one to, to rein it all in. As we were saying, they were doing a lot of drugs, cocaine. Um, the cocaine heads were really Mick and Christine and, and Stevie. John was a boozer and Lindsay, although they all did cocaine, Lindsay was an aficionado of marijuana um, for many, many, many years. Um, there was a funny prank that Ken Calais and Richard Das had pulled on the band uh, while they were making it. They had would have literally bags of cocaine sitting on the, the console um, that they would pull out at various times. Um, one of the things, the rituals would be pulling out some cocaine and um, Mick Fleetwood had a favorite a Robert Frost poem that he would recite, um, which, you know, he recited a lot and it plays into a lot of the stories of the recording of this album. And so it goes, the woods are lonely, dark and deep, and we have miles to go before we sleep. And he would speak this, they would do cocaine and they would try to get into a, a trance-like state that he would call transcension. Right, which was the way it was described as sort of like that peak buzz where they could really do their their best um, recording and music making and creativity, as it were. Um, one prank that was pulled by Ken and Richard is they uh, took uh, made up a fake bag of cocaine with you know I don't know baking powder or whatever you would do, and he, they were bringing it out. So Ken Calais brought this fake bag out into the studio because it was time for some transcension, I guess. And he uh, made a, like a, a, a big goof of it and tripped and fell and dumped the fake cocaine everywhere in the studio to the horror of the entire band. And even John McVie like dived over some baffle to try to like start snorting it up off the floor. Oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah, and then they all started laughing and and uh, at least Richard and, and Ken started laughing. So that was, a, that was a trick that they played that shows you how focused they were on the, on the cocaine. Um, we're not overdoing it there. One thing you alluded to before is one of the things that was happening when they were making this album is they were playing it back so much and doing so many overdubs and playing around with different versions of the song and things like that, that the actual, the, the oxide on the tape started to wear down. And when they were getting to the final throes of the, you know, putting the album together and they were listening to it, and then they had done some comparisons against some early safeties they had done of the drum tracks. They're like, the drums sound like shit on the current version. What happened? That's so crazy. Yeah, it's so crazy. They had played it back so many times, the tape had actually worn off. And the high end of the of the tracks was worn off, and they started freaking out about this. It's like, oh, my God, this sounds like shit. What are we going to do? Well, they, you know, they're, they're conscientious between doing drugs, I guess. The 
uh, Ken Calais and, and Richard Dassett that they had safeties made of certain parts. So they had to transfer the drum tracks back to the originals. And there was no automation to do this back then. Today is easily done with computers and, and SMPD time coding and you know all those sort of things that didn't exist. And so they had to manually do it and variably control the tape of the speed of the tape by listening to it. And there's this whole story in Ken Calais' book called Making Rumors, um, where he talks about him having to rig this up where um, he's listening to the album in a certain way where he can hear the phasing of the different tracks. And he had to manually sort of correct the tape machine to keep it in phase just like by hand. And he just painstakingly did that over many days. I'm sure um, cocaine was used to keep him going on that. But they they did it. And to your point, the album wound up sounding uh, quite uh, great. Um, yeah, that says that speaks to a few things. One is that's interesting to me that that was all manual because it reminds me of stories of Dark Side of the Moon yeah. where a lot of the sound effects you think that it's like automated, but it's really just them doing something manually at the time that's and trying right. to and they're manually syncing it up rather than you know because we take advantage of all the uh you know we take for granted all the automation we have now being able to automate things and sync them up really to to a t so it's kind of cool that it sounds as good as it does given that you know huge setback what you think would be just like a huge setback they actually were able to rescue it just by through paint through a painstaking manual process it also goes to say that really music made with a bunch of drugs is just better. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like bands when they stop doing like, look at Aerosmith, man. Yeah. I mean, obviously they got, to, there's a, there's a saturation point where the drugs becomes too much. The drugs become too much and you end up with like, you know, a rock and a hard place by Aerosmith, but you, you know, rocks. Yeah. Rocks was all made with on rocks, you know, yeah. basically they're, yeah. they're snorting Coke the whole time and they made this masterpiece. And, and, you know, that I don't think anything, you know, uh, said, you know, basically uh, demonstrates that as much as this record, because this is such a fantastic album. And it was just such made in this just drug fueled orgy. Essentially. That was about cocaine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, the lot of the whole thing was about very contentious, making a lot of fighting, a lot of arguing. Everyone was fighting with each other. Nobody really got along except maybe I think. Um, Christine and Stevie mostly got along, but Christine has a lot. There's a lot of things where she's really annoyed with Stevie. Stevie's kind of a weird hippie chick and thought she was like, you know, had magical powers and all this kind of stuff, which we'll talk about in the, in our evaluation section, John and Lindsay fought a lot about the, his bass parts. Lindsay was like, no, John play it like this, this, this. And John was like, you know, go fuck yourself. I know how to play bass. Just let me do what I want to do on these songs kind of things. Um, and then, you know, they finally got it made. It took a long time, almost a year. And while it was being made, the White Album, the 75 album, was becoming a major, major, huge breakthrough, mega seller hit. So as they're recording Rumors, the pressure on the success of Rumors was going up and up and up and up and up, which contributed to, I think, a lot of the you know stress of, of all that whole situation. So I'll turn it back over to you. You're going to talk about, well, how did it do once it came out, right? Okay. This album was like, of course, a blockbuster. And what's crazy to me when I think about this is that it was number one for 31 weeks, six months 
like over six months. Yeah. I mean, that's just insane, right? Can you imagine an album just being stuck at number one for that long? I mean, obviously Saturday Night Fever would kind of repeat that action, you know, uh, the next year. But I mean, it was just un unprecedented in a way. And then the, finally they had a hit in the UK again. So they became huge in the UK for the first time since the Peter Green, because the 75 album didn't really do much in the UK. Eventually it would sell more based on this. But this was the album that really kicked them up in the UK. And it, it's the 11th biggest seller in UK history. Um, the sales at the time were a lot. And by, by 1980, it was like 13 million. But since then, it's more like 40 million. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's currently, I believe currently, and it may change, I may be off, but I think it's the seventh biggest selling album ever of all time. You know, you have albums like Back in Black, Led Zeppelin IV, um, you know, a Thriller, Saturday Night Fever, you know, these albums are all up there. But I think um, obviously the Eagles' greatest hits is the biggest one. But all these albums are just like massive, right? Absolutely massive. Uh, it had four top 10 singles, including one number one, which was Dreams, right? The other one hits were Go Your Own Way, Don't Stop, and You Make Love and Fun. Uh, obviously, almost all of it has been played on the radio. Uh, you know, the chain became an FM radio staple. But every single song has been played on the radio all over the place. Um, it won some, I forget which American Music Awards it won, um, but it won a few of those and it won the Grammy for Album of the Year. Um, and obviously, after in the aftermath of this, they got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame as well. Uh, so they were they were absolute superstars and they were touring and just selling out arenas uh, at this time. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we the, there you know, what's interesting about this is there isn't much documentation on this time in the form of like biographies and stuff. I mean, there's a book called Gold Dust Woman about Stevie Nicks, which I haven't read, which I think probably focuses more on her individually. There's Mick Fleetwood's book, Then Play On, which is pretty good. That talks about this time. And there's this trashy book that Jeff introduced me to uh, by Caroline Harris, who was dating Lindsay at this time. This was his girlfriend at the time uh, called Storms. And she talks a lot about how, I mean, they, when they would go out live, they would just do cocaine as part of their warm-up. You know, their um, their manager, uh, John's, John Courage, he would he would basically just set them up with cocaine and they'd go through the whole Robert Frost and transcension ritual before every show. Um, now, in order to follow this up, what was interesting is Lindsay kind of started listening to a lot of the music that was around at the time. You know, obviously Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles were were the biggest thing, but the new and up and coming music was like punk rock and new wave. So Lindsay started listening to things like Elvis Costello and the Talking Heads. And he kind of said, he, you know, with rumors, he didn't really hear when he felt like the results of rumors was not how he heard the music in his head. And so he started like basically recording music in his bathroom and stuff for Tusk. So he ended up recording all this really kind of quirky new wave, like stuff, pop stuff, um, pretty brilliant stuff, but not as accessible as rumors. And then the other band members brought their material in and you end up with a sprawling double album, including with the really weird first single, which was a top 10 hit. It was a big hit, the title track. Um, but this album, I, and that and Sarah were the only really big hits off of this. And it just didn't, you know, it, it was considered a failure at the time. And critics didn't really know how to deal with it. I think it's been reassessed over the years and people look at it as kind of a masterpiece, kind of a lost quirky masterpiece. I'm kind of on the fence of what I think about it. I think I really like his stuff, but it almost seems like a Lindsay solo album with some other uh, Christine McVie and Stevie Nicks tacked on. It doesn't seem to me to have the holistic 
feel of like a rumors yeah. you know it's very disjointed but there's moments of absolute brilliance on it and it's really interesting record and i think it's a it kind of makes sense for them to do a record like this and mick fleetwood had said this is his second favorite album next to them play on you know because i think they liked that they were being bold and daring and obviously they could do any fucking thing they wanted yeah. right i mean they were so popular it didn't really matter but it was it sold four million copies and it, by any other uh, you know, stretch of the imagination, this would be considered a success, but compared to the, you know, at least 10 million by this time or 13 million of rumors, it was considered a bomb. And it wasn't well received. Early people didn't know what to make of it. Um, obviously, they did a massive tour on this, but then what ended up happening is Stevie Nicks, of course, being kind of the front of the band and being kind of the icon, you know, I mean, women, when she started doing Rhiannon, women would show up to the show before they did this for Madonna and dress up like her and stuff. It was almost like people would do for David Bowie or something. I mean, she was like a rock star definitely, in yeah. every sense of the word. And so she came out with a solo record. You know, she teamed up with Tom Petty on a song and Don, Don Henley. Like they, I think they exchanged a little leather and lace earlier on. There was a, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, but, but they eventually would do it in song and, you know, she, and Belladonna was as big of a seller as Tusk. Yeah. As a single record, it was a uh, four million. It was an absolute blockbuster, and so she was like a superstar on her own. The uh, you know Lindsay had a solo album this time. He had a minor hit. I remember hearing this on the radio and kind of thinking it was weird, but kind of liking it. I think I'm in trouble. Yeah. Remember that one? Yeah. Um, and then you know obviously they came out with Mirage, and we're just gonna let's just blaze through the rest of it. Really, you know Mirage that was a big hit. You know it had a few hit singles. The number one album in the U.S. They did the Us Festival, so they're another uh, Us Festival just going to come back and back on our show. But they did the first Us Festival, the '82 Us Festival, and they were actually the biggest band on there. They got five hundred thousand dollars at the time, which was a lot of money at the time to play. Um, and then you have a period of uh, solo albums, right? So Stevie Nicks followed up. Uh, Belladonna with Wild Heart, right? You had Prince playing on Stand Back. That was a big hit. It wasn't nearly as big. It was like uh, uh, 2 million sold, right? And uh, you said you wanted to say something about this, I yeah, think. Th there's, a, there's a live backstage version of her singing Wild Heart um, while she's getting ready for a show. And the version that she sings is like a hundred times better than the one on the album. You can find yeah. it on YouTube. It's like super popular on YouTube. We'll post a link to it. I think it's a much, much better version of the song than the one on the album. That's all. Oh, cool. And then of course, uh, my wife would kill me if I didn't mention her favorite song by Lindsay Buckingham ever holiday road That's great. Uh, from vacation. Yeah. Um, you know, when we saw Fleetwood Mac tribute band, I forgot to mention this too. My dad's, uh, my dad lives in this community called Canyon Lake. It's like a gated community. Everyone has a boat. And they would do these live shows of tribute bands and they would play like on this, this area of the beach around the lake and everyone would drive their boats and they would watch the show in their boats. And when we were there, there was a Fleetwood Mac cover band and it's going to kill me, but I don't remember the name. They had some stupid name. Um, uh, there's one in the Bay Area called Fleetwood Mask, which I've seen, which was pretty good. So I saw that a cover band that they have a pretty good Stevie Nicks. Uh, they have. All these bands have terrible Lindsey Buckingham's. You just can't, you can't replace him with anybody as we'll find out in the history of Fleetwood Mac. Uh, but, but they all had pretty good Stevie Nicks, you know? So I saw this one in Southern California and my wife was just like, when are they going to play holiday road? And I said, Hey, you know, that's not a, that's not a Fleetwood Mac song, but then they played like 
let's dance or something you know i'm like what you know they played like david bowie because he had died recently you know and so they played david bowie and i'm just like you guys you you're allowed to play covers as a cover band if that band would play that cover so you if fleetwood mac did a cover you could play that but they would never do a cover of david bowie so you know it's just bullshit but they didn't play holiday road she was mad so uh obviously Kristen mcbee had her solo album she had one hit single on there um and but uh, no one really did as well as Stevie Nicks, and right. it's not even close, right? Uh, Mick Fleetwood, you know, the band had spent money pretty recklessly on cocaine, but uh, Mick Fleetwood was really bad with money. He had he had bought all these cars, these sports cars and stuff, so he was practically bankrupt during this time. Um, and then Stevie Nicks, you know, her um, her third album was called Rock a Little. And I joke that it was made with a lot of rocks. It was about because, cocaine. but yeah, it was about cocaine, rock a little. Uh, you know, she was had such a bad cocaine addiction that when she went to her doctor, he said, "You're going to die if you do any more cocaine." So in order to get her off cocaine, he put her on a drug that might even be worse, clonopin, which is a benzodiazepine similar to like Valium and Xanax. Um, and she went on clonopin and she developed a habit for that. So she would quit that in the nineties finally, but that's, those drugs are really tough to get off of. I mean, you can't just quit them cold Turkey because you'll die. You have to titrate off of them. So she had, you know, she was really messed up during this time. You know, they were all kind of off in their own worlds. And Lindsay was working on a solo album at the time. He had worked, he had done an album called Go Insane. I used to have this on record, but I got rid of it. I just never got into this album. It's so the production is just too 80s for me, even though there's some good songs. I don't know what you think about that. I, one. I have it. I like it. You know, uh, maybe I should give it another chance because yeah. I just I just didn't like this the the sonics on it were too 80s, although I've kind of warmed to some of the 80s sounds more recently. But at the time I just didn't like the 80sness of it. Um and so I guess Go Insane is about Carol Ann Harris, according to her. Yeah. Um, but uh, at any rate, they, you know, they got together. Uh, Lindsay was recording a follow-up to Go Insane, and then they decided to get together um, to make another Fleetwood Mac album, and they made Tango in the Night. Um, and this album, I think, has really grown in reputation. At the time, it was kind of critically, mildly accepted. It was a big hit. You know, obviously, it had a big love, and... Uh, Everywhere and Little Lies and uh, Seven Wonders. Those are all massive hits. And the album is their second biggest seller at 15 million. So it's diamond sales. Um, And I think it's really well regarded now. After this, the band fragmented again. Uh, You know, those were, I think with Lindsay and Stevie, they just never got over over that whole thing. And they've been fighting ever since. Yeah. You know, so they've had a, a, a rocky relationship ever since. And Fleetwood Mac made Behind the Mask, um, which was actually number one in the UK, which is weird because it was only number 18 here. And they recreated these two guys to replace Lindsey Buckingham, Billy Burnett and Rick Vito. And the funny thing about this album is this is fucking how dumb Rolling Stone is. Rolling Stone reviewed this album, gave it four stars, which there's no way this is a four star. If you've listened to this album, it's the most boring adult contemporary. It's like Tango of the Night has adult contemporary overtones, but the songs are all great. There's nothing. This album is just boring as hell. It's completely bland. No character. It goes to show how Christine McVie and and Stevie, as good as they are, without Lindsay, they're just. I mean, she did some good stuff on Belladonna. I'll say there's good songs, but without him and Fleetwood Mac, those songs are just they're just forgettable. Um, and I think um, what's funny is they in the review that they gave it four stars. They said that the 
the arrival of Billy Burnett and Rick Zito was the best thing to ever happen. Okay. To so this goes like Jan Wenner. This goes to show what a piece of shit that guy is. Um, anyway, obviously there's the don't stop thing uh, with Clinton. You know, obviously Clinton loved Fleetwood Mac. Um, he's part of the sexy seventies too. Mm. You know, let's just be straightforward. <laughs> who knows what he was doing while he listened to rumors? Uh, you know, who knows what poor intern in the seventies was uh, subjected to his, uh, his, uh, you know, like wanted to make, yeah. Yeah. He wanted to make love and fun back in the seventies, yeah. just like he did in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, so we brought Fleetwood Mac back. Do you remember watching this on TV or seeing this at the time? I or? did. And, and when Fleetwood Mac would get together to play it for these events, they sounded like absolute shit. They hadn't played yeah. together. I mean, nobody sounded good. You know, Stevie Nicks at that time was very unhealthy. She was very overweight and Lindsay was playing, didn't sound great either. And she didn't sound good. And it was, they weren't playing as a band. You could just tell it was just, you know, not great. So before this time though, they had reunited briefly, but before this time, Stevie Nicks had quit the band. And the reason she quit it is she was going to release a greatest hits album and she wanted to put the the one kind of track that was dropped from Rumors, the main track. I think there were probably other tracks, but this was the big one where they really wanted to put on the album called Silver Springs. And she wanted to put that on her greatest hits. But Mick Fleetwood wanted to put that on the Fleetwood Mac box that he was putting together. So they fought and she left the band. And so, you know, they got together briefly for this, for this uh, reunion for the uh, Democratic Convention. But then... Fleetwood Mac was like, then again, like they had just the three of them, you know, the McVees and, uh, and, and Mick Fleetwood. So they recruited uh, a couple of their, oh, well, I guess they still had Billy Burnett. I think Rick Vito had gone, by the way, they still had Billy Burnett, but whatever, this anonymous guitarist, with no personality. Um, and then they, they brought in Dave Mason from Late of Traffic and, uh, you know, 70s soft rock classic, We Just Disagree, and Becca Bramlett, who was the uh, daughter of Delaney and bon- Bonnie Bramlett. And uh, they made this album called Time, and it is the worst album ever. I mean, if you've ever heard this album, this is a piece of shit. It sounds nothing like the band. Christine McVie phones it in all the way. It's just a, a, a terrible album. And no one bought it. It didn't even chart in the U.S. at all. Um, and they were they were reduced. I mean, this is the, one of the biggest bands in the world. They were reduced to playing these package tours with Pat Benatar and REO Speedwagon. So you imagine all these individual bands, we've talked about it before, playing who could play arenas are all playing like Canocti Harbor, yeah. you know, the place I went to, all three of them, Fleetwood Mac, legendary band. Um, and then, of course, they got back together in 97 for the live album, The Dance, which was a total comeback for the band, a uh, huge phenomenon, uh, number one in the U.S., just brought back, probably caused more rumors copies to be sold. Yeah. I don't know the stats, but again, a massive comeback, and they actually sound pretty good on this stuff. Um, again, Christine McVie, you know, decided to retire. She was kind of burnt out and she decided to quit the band, but they uh, kind of soldiered on and they made an album called Say You Will, which is basically like a Lindsay and Stevie album slammed together. Um, And it's way too long. I think there's some good stuff on this. I don't like the sound. I think it's kind of compressed sounding. Um, You know, early 2000s when Pro Tools started coming around, I just don't like that sound very much. But there's some okay stuff on here, but it's, you know, it's not really... I don't know. It's a shadow of their former selves, let's say. Um, and, you know, obviously, and it's longer than Tusk. It's like way too long. Um, again, it, 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 it sold well for, album, you know, even though in the early 2000s with iTunes and this, albums weren't selling as well. This did pretty well. Um, 
And obviously they, they would record the last thing they would record was an EP called extended play. But that was, uh, that again was without Christine McVie. Interestingly enough, Christine McVie and Lindsey Buckingham made an album together as well called uh, Buckingham McVie and John McVie and Mick Fleet would play on it. Yeah. So that's four out of five members, but it's not called Fleetwood Mac. Why is that? Because the star isn't there. Yeah. So if Stevie Nicks isn't there, I mean, obviously in the nineties, they were able to call it Fleetwood Mac, but it's interesting to me that this isn't Fleetwood Mac. It may have just been that they're not on every track. I don't know. But when I looked at the personnel, they're on it. And I'm just like, that's weird that it's not a Fleetwood Mac album. Uh, and then, of course, Lindsay continued to pump out albums in the early uh, 2000s. Um, and, uh, you know, they're all of varying quality, but there's all interesting stuff. And I think, uh, you know, I love the acoustic one. What's it called? Like something neck. Yeah, I forget even. It was like yeah. Turn of the Screw. There was like, Gift of Screws. Gift yeah, of Screws. Gift of Screws, like, yeah. I mean, they're, they're all just okay. I don't listen to them very much at all. Yeah, I think the guitar playing on that one is just un- incredible. But it's like the songs are just not the magic. Yeah, I and, agree. You know, and Stevie has continued her solo career. You know, she's she's still kind of popular. Um, but what ended up happening was uh, Lindsay ended up getting kicked out. You know, Fleetwood Mac reunited with Christine McVie for a very short time. And then Lindsay ended up getting kicked out because of a conflict between him and Stevie. You know, people said it was over schedules and solo albums and other people said it was over, uh, you know, him smirking at some speech she gave or something. Um, He ended up having a heart attack, too, you know, Um, and of course, he nearly died and then he's had some marital problems and stuff. But he really, you know, he he just recorded an album like last year um, and or the year before. Uh, and you know, they're still kicking, you know, they're still touring. And like I said, my, my stepniece soul. And so that's kind of where we left it. That's kind of where we leave Fleetwood Mac today. I don't know if the original five members of that era are ever going to get back together. Um, but you know, who knows if they'll live long enough. John McPhee had colon cancer. He, He beat it. He actually beat it, but I mean, he's really old. You know, some of these guys, I mean, he's almost 80 years old. So some of these guys are pretty old, so I don't know if they're going to continue or not but that's kind of where we leave them off in the history. Okay. So let's actually uh, take a deep breath. That was a long history, but um, let's talk about the album itself. And we're going to go through some of the tracks. And one of the interesting things is um, you had mentioned, there's not a lot of like books or stuff about the making of this album in this era. And from a documentary point of view, um, There's classic albums, classic albums is the main one, which is, which is really good one, but which, yeah, which is a really that's... good one. But you would think there would be more. Um, and we did right. some research and we found out that there was another documentary that was made during this time that um, people don't know about. And there's a reason they don't know about it. Um, there's, this is a documentary that was made by a guy named Niall, Nigel Simon Rogers Worthington St. John. And um, this guy was an old school chum of Mick Fleetwood. Um, in the mixed book, I think he talks about many stories of, you know, in it, them playing the soggy biscuit game and all these sort of things that happen <laughs> in British schools that we won't go yeah. into here. Um, yeah. But this guy uh, became a doc, an educational uh, documentarian for governmental agencies like the National Health and stuff like that. Made documentaries about like avoiding VD and the importance of a balanced diet and those sorts of things. Anyway, uh, Mick invited this guy to record rumors or what became rumors, right? Um, to help them break into mainstream non-educational docs. 
Um, it turns out that uh, Niall, Nigel Simon Rogers Worthington in St. John was also having an affair with Mick's wife, Jenny. Um, <laughs> and it would come out later that no fewer of four of Mick's friends were simultaneously having an affair with Jenny um, during this time, which was really, she's a busy woman. Um, Mick would say, and he says this on the classic albums uh, documentary, that it's better that she's having an affair with, with three or four of his best mates than three or four strangers. So, you know, Mick had a maybe a open attitude towards it or, or not that, uh, you know, proprietary. I, I don't know. But anyway, um, after the rough cuts of this documentary were completed and shown to, you know, band management, a decision was made to bury them because the material is just seen as, frankly, even too inflammatory for the sexy 70s and too risque. And they just were like, this is not going to look good. The record company was against it. And it just disappeared. And it was just kind of talked about, you know, whispered about. Um, people didn't really know it existed um, until. Yeah, I think yeah. I think uh, if you've ever heard of the Rolling Stones film, Cocksucker Blues. So this was a film made by a documentarian up there, 1972 tour for Exile Main Street. Right. And right. it's like got them with like underage girls and all this stuff. And it's got them doing drugs. And, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it's like it's it's a movie I got to see, but it can only be shown theatrically. At least I mean, it's probably out on the Internet now. But this was like maybe in the not late 90s, early 2000s that I saw it. And it was like it could only be shown every once in a while because the band had, you know, they had commissioned it and they had decommissioned it. So this was very similar to yes. the um, to the St. John documentary of Fleetwood Mac. You know, it was like they had commissioned it, but they didn't really like what he captured, like because he he basically had all access. He and did. Even though you've heard the salacious rumors about rumors, we're going to play some clips that I think you're not you have not heard of. And, yeah. you know, it's basically even more dramatic than you've heard is what we're saying here. Exactly. And we came into possession of it because there's a CS CFX fan out there um, who actually also coincidentally had an affair with Mick's uh, wife, Jenny, um, contacted us with a copy of this and said, hey, if you're ever going to do rumors, you got to play this. And and so we we will. And we'll introduce those clips when we get to it. So let's talk about the album. So the first album, part of the album, opens up with a, a song called uh, Secondhand News. Um, this is written and sang by Lindsay. And here is a clip from the classic albums documentary of Lindsay talking about this, uh, the making of this. So I'll play it. Secondhand News was considered really a front runner to be the opening track on the album uh, from early on. And... The song itself it consists of kind of Scottish, Irish folk influences. And when we first started cutting it, I think we were doing it with something that was a more literal translation of that. In other words, maybe a, a march time on, on snare with brushes or some odd thing. But uh, we were also very interested in, in, in keeping the pop element since it was going to be the first song and it was a pop album. Um, and they were uh, so we really opted for uh, just more of a, a dance beat within the confines of what that was. I think I'd even heard Jive talking by the Bee Gees and uh, and sort of pulled a couple of textures from that, which uh, you will hear. So there's Lindsay talking about it. Um, I don't actually have a, a clip from the song. Uh, I think if we played that at the beginning, there might have been a little bit of it. But anyway, I, I just thought that you wanted to talk a little bit about the the pow, 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 pow kind of vocal. Yeah, thing. yeah. 
So, I mean, you know, they, in that classic rock documentary, he talks about how he wanted like kind of a guitar, but he ended up doing it with the voices, you yeah. know, like pow, 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 pow. I mean, it's so clever and it's so like, it's kind of reminds me of Brian Wilson, like doing weird stuff in smile where he would use like fire bells and all these different, you know, you know, basically they would do stuff, uh, you know, to make the sounds of vegetables. And it was just that aesthetic, yeah, like just really quirky little, little ideas. Um, and I mean, again, this, his guitar play, uh, his, his guitar playing on this is just uh, incredible, this percussive kind of acoustic guitar. I also love the drum sound on this. This is like a, a really kind of, it almost sounds like, a, not like a, you know, the snare sound. It's like, I can't even describe it. It's almost like he's hitting something else. Like um, It's a chair, I think. Oh, okay. That's why it sounds yeah. so great. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, you know, what's what, and it's a, a theme we're going to come to again and again with this record is like how, you know, this album is, popular but it has enough like quirkiness and originality that it's not um lifeless you know it's got like it's 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 got a song like this that's very melodically catchy but it's also got these quirky production effects that kind of make it original and unique and make it richer and make it kind of transcend its popularity in other words yeah you know and i think i think that's what uh you know, the, the kind of way this album is mixed, that's what does it for me is that they do those little quirky things and little oddball things, uh, you know, especially we'll talk about gold dust woman, all the crazy shit they did on that. Yeah. You know, it just makes it for me. It, it gives it a vibe that I think, uh, well, no there's, other album there's has. comedy too. lay, lay you down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff. It's supposed to be funny. Right. And I've heard, you said this, you, you noted here that it, you think it's about Stevie. I think it's about, I heard it's about the other women he kind of went to after Stevie. Like, it's kind of like, like, what does it mean to be secondhand news? So he's kind of saying like, I'm secondhand news because of I've been dumped by her. I mean, what do you think that means? I, I think it's, yeah, it's all about that. It's all mixed together. But I think the, uh, the, let me lay you down in the tall grass thing with him sort of propositioning her. It's like, Hey, kind of a booty call sort of thing. Yeah, maybe. That's what I, I mean, think the other th- The other thing is there's bitterness there, but there's also joy. That's what's so crazy about this album yeah. is like, even though the lyrics, there's these biting lines, it's like, I, it makes you feel good yeah. to listen to this out. I mean, it's like when we think about Earth, Wind & Fire, we thought about September. This album gives me a lot of those same vibes, yeah. even though it's got bitterness to it. It's like, it's almost like defiant the way he sings this, but it's uplifting too, because of the energy of the song and his vocals. And, and I love their, the, the way they sing together on this album, I think is some of the best vocals of all time because they, they sing in these harmonies, but they never quite become like this new unit there. You can always detect their individual voices yeah, and they're almost kind of ragged and hippie like to me, like some of the way they sing together, like there's something organic and real. I'll play that, an example of that on Dreams, in fact. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of yeah. course. But this song, yeah, I mean, you know, this song is fantastic. You know, it's it's probably one of the best album openers ever. I agree. You know, I love uh, this song, and it's, too. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece, yeah. Yep. All right. So the second song is Dreams, which, of course, was written and sang by uh, uh, Stevie Nicks. Here is a clip from the St. John documentary that we talked about. So this has never been heard before, as far as we know. 
This is the hidden documentary. So here is um, uh, Ken Calais, the producer, um, talking about dreams and how it came together. So here, here we go. Working with Stevie was always a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, she wasn't a musician in the typical sense, and recording with her always seemed to be half session, half seance. She thought she was a witch with magical powers, and she worked out her complex feelings towards Lindsay with her lyrics. We did several takes that didn't work out very well, but then on take eight, we got something special. Lindsay's an asshole. Yeah, so you can hear this, yeah. there's not a lot of positive vibes happening while they're making no. making this album, right? Um, and, and this song in particular, she clearly she was not very pleased with Lindsay at that particular moment, right? Here's um, that's right. Here's her talking some more about the making of this song. Um, some interesting takes. Dreams this is from classic. on one of those nights where. There wasn't anything for me to do, so I went down the hall to uh, a studio that was here in the record plant that was Sly Stone's studio. And when I had nothing to do, I could take all my stuff down there, and so I would take a electric piano with me and, um, you know, my crocheting and my journals and my books and my art, and I'd just kind of just stay there, you know, until they needed me. Um, some people needed her more than others, which we'll explore more in other parts of this but uh, you can hear, you know, obviously she was thinking a lot about her lyrics, hanging out in uh, Sly's uh, studio there, uh, writing this song. Um, lastly, I, the clip I want to play here is you were talking about harmonies, right? You were talking about them singing together. I think some of the best harmonies on this album um, are on this song. And here's an example of, I think, what you were talking about, Slip. Oh, thunder only happens when it's raining. What we have here is Chris and Lindsay doing the uh, main lead, uh, vocal and Stevie doing two harmonies. They will come and they will go. When the rain washes you clean, you know. You know. Great. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So this song, yeah, I mean, this is the classic, right? The, of the album, this is the one that has really made the most impact. It has the most downloads on Spotify, over a billion. Um, obviously, this was the TikTok video, and this is like a Stevie Nicks showcase, even though we'll talk about Lindsay's contribution as well. 
you know, I always was of the cult of Lindsay in my recent years. And I always thought, you know, he's the real genius behind this and he did everything. And that there is some truth to that. But I feel like this song kind of shows her songwriting genius because I love the melody of this song. It's it's simple, but it's deceptively so. Like, I think she does things here that are so original. Like, I lo- first of all, I love her lyrics. I think her lyrics are very evocative. I love Rihanna, and that's one of my favorite songs. I love all the kind of witchy shit she does. Um, sometimes it can be self-parody. Yeah. But I think in the early days, it wasn't. Everything was great she did. I mean, she's. I think she's a great lyricist, just evocative. But one of my favorite things melodically about this is how she goes straight from the verse into the kind of chorus, right? So she'll do this thing where she goes, but listen carefully to the sound of your loneliness. And it just flows right into like a heartbeat drives you mad. Like it's all one thing. Yeah. And I'm like, I think that's so original. Like that is such a brilliant um, melodic idea. Um, You know, and obviously um, what Lindsay does to the song is what makes it. And she's admitted that many, many times in interviews. She basically said, yeah, my songs wouldn't be what they are without it. Right. And her solo stuff, there's some good stuff, but it's not this level. And I think the the kind of backdrop he puts on this really, it gives it that dreaminess, that hypnotic uh, nature and her already unique melody and lyrics that evoke that. I mean, he basically, again, it's like two dimensional to three dimensional. My favorite thing is that kind of weird kind of uh, kind of moaning guitar sound. It reminds me of. Uh, Dark Moon actually it reminds me of Breathe by Pink Floyd. It's it's that same lazy hypnotic. It's just so beautiful the the backdrop he gives this, and it's like yeah. I mean I don't really get sick of this. I mean I've heard it a million times and it's just so great to listen to, and I just love everything about it. Yeah, um, I I agree. I love this song. I always have. It's simple musically. It's going back and forth between you know two two uh, keys there, but, um, uh, yeah, I love it. Great production. I agree with everything you said about it. I think the sound of the bass and the drums is so out there in front, um, in a way, um, the very prominent dude, the rhythm section on this band is so underrated. I think that Mick Fleetwood, and I actually was going to talk about this later, but I'm going to talk about it now. Uh, he basically, there's this whole story of um, Jeff Porcaro, when he was playing with Boz Skaggs, they were touring with Fleetwood Mac, and he would listen to Mick Fleetwood to try to figure out what the hell he was doing. Because, I mean, and Jeff Porcaro of Toto, and he played on all those Steely Dan records, right. one of the greatest drummers ever, way better than Mick Fleetwood by any objective measure. But he was mystified by Mick Fleetwood's feel. Yeah. You know, and, and I think he plays these simple beats, but he just emphasizes little things that just make this song. And yeah, and it's also the way it's mixed, right? The drums are up there and they kind of give it that extra oomph. And of course the bass line is beautiful. I mean, John, we'll talk more about John McBee when we get to the chain, Yeah, obviously, but yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had to throw those in. To well, go and it on. sounds great. I mean, the drums yeah. sound great in the same way that the drums sound great on, you know, Dark Side of the Moon and Asia and all that kind of stuff. Like right. the, the tom sounds just are so rich and the bass drum sounds, it's just recorded so well. Um, and that is a big part of everything. Um, yeah, Stevie Nicks at times annoys me. I, I'm not her biggest fan in terms of all the witchy shit and all that solo stuff. 
there, but um, there's no question that this is one of, an all, one of the all-time great uh, songs. The next song is Never Going Back Again. Actually, before yeah. you before you move on, I wanted to say a couple more things. One, thunder always happens when it's raining. Whatever that means, it's like great, right? But then when she sings, who am I to keep you down? She's kind of like, who am I to keep? You know, it's almost yeah. like she sounds like she has a cold. And I think that what that is, is she has her nose just full of cocaine at the time. Yeah. So I think that's what really <laughs> kind of gives that weird stuff nose kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, when she's singing that line, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah. It really kind of helps the song, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Well, given how much Coke they did, there's a good chance she always had some, you know, going through yeah. her nasal cavity there. Um, the next song, Never Going Back Again, is a Lindsay song. The, just the title of the song, you get the idea it's maybe not the the nicest intent in the world. Um, it's also a great song. Here's a clip from the, a classic albums documentary where Lindsay is talking about the, the genesis of this song and, and his relationship with Lindsay. This was at a time when uh, Stevie and I had uh, pretty much parted company. This was near the end of the making of Rumors that we did this. So you can imagine they really were in right. the process of breaking up, fighting a lot. This song is being written... Lindsay also was uh, dating a woman named uh, Christina, who was a waitress at the local uh, cafe that they hang out, hanged out at, hung out at, I guess would be the right word, um, called Agatha's. And they talk a lot about this. And Kim Calley talks a lot about this in his book, Making Rumors. And so um, here's Lindsay talking a little bit of, about his relationship with this waitress. I had met uh, a young lady. It didn't turn into being anything heavy, but but what it did do was sort of put a little wind in my sails in terms of the sense of... Well, put a little wind in his sails, so I think we know what that yeah. means. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's he's now seeing somebody else, and that's great, but he still had a lot of pent-up anger towards uh, Stevie. And this is a clip from the St. John documentary, um, where they're actually uh, recording Never Go Back Again, Never Going Back Again, and with the original lyrics, which were never heard and have never been heard, I don't think, um, until right now. There were original lyrics to this song, not the ones you hear on the album, um, and they were captured in the St. John documentary. So um, world premiere of of the original lyrics here of Never Going Back Again, um, again, this is Ken Calais, the, the producer, talking about um, the recording of this. The making of Rumors was uh, far more contentious than people realize. Uh, Stevie and Lindsay's breakup was very raw for everyone, and it didn't help matters that uh, Mick and Stevie's affair was a poorly kept secret among the band and crew. Naturally, Lindsay used his music as an outlet for his uh, complex feelings on the subject. Let's try uh, Never Going Back Again uh, with the new lyrics you have. Let's roll it. Uh, take one.
Nah, they're great. Whimsical, you know. Oh, all right. Well, let's try the other uh, lines there and, and see how it goes, Lindsay. So, all right, let's go. Let's continue. Here we go. choking you again yeah so certainly Lindsay was not in his finest singing voice on that particular uh, session but nevertheless you know never heard those lyrics before but uh, quite incendiary uh, towards Stevie as you heard. right and and we didn't mention this before we didn't really talk about the album art right Fleetwood Mac has this whole history of having like from in the Lindsay era they basically feature some members of the band and not others. And this album just features Stevie Nicks and Mick Fleetwood. And he has these wooden balls suspended from his like pants, right. That he would wear all the time. And I guess he would clack them together or whatever. Um, and that's what the reference was in, in the lyrics. Yeah. I think this song, it may be a little too biting in its original form, you know, but, but again, um, you know, uh, you know, it gets it gets to the bottom of uh, maybe he needed to work through that before he could move on. And his voice kind of sounds a little weird on that track as well. Yeah, certainly um, and, not as good as it normally does. Yeah, for sure. yeah. He um, had an off day then, off so day. they probably couldn't use it either either way. Yeah, true. And and the other thing too is Lindsay also had a little problem with violence that we'll talk about um, towards uh, some of the women that he dated, including Stevie, by the way, which she writes about in her book. And also towards Ken Calais, the producer, in his book, Making Rumors, he talks about how Lindsay got angry at him and tried to choke him. Um, and, you know, the rest of the band had to pull Lindsay off of Ken. And so I think Lindsay's also sort of threatening him again at the end of, of that, uh, that, that take, which is unfortunate. But, but again, this is, a, this is a, probably my favorite song on the album. It's so great. Um, the original lyrics, I think, would have been really a bold choice, but yeah. the ones that they went with, I think, are still very good, and I like them as well. So, right, and and it, you get the point of the song anyway without all of the, uh, you know, vindictive lyrics. But but uh, you know, one thing I'll say about this song is in the classic albums documentary, there's actually a scene of him kind of playing this on yeah. acoustic guitar. And my and when we first saw that, me and my wife, she's like wow, he's really good. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. Yeah. You know, it's like, he is one of those guys. I think now people know, but you know, obviously he's always been looked at as a great singer songwriter, a great producer, but he's also like one of the best guitarists ever. Like he is so good. And, and especially on this kind of guitar, I think he has this unique style. I really like the kind of chiming arpeggios or whatever they call them. You know, I don't know music, but it's like the, the, the kind of weird style he does. And it's so such an incredible part and it's so great. And then, you know, even on something like Gypsy, his like little tinkling guitar in the background just makes that song. I don't think it would be the same without it. I just love almost everything he does on guitar. I mean, he can rock out too. Like on I'm So Afraid, he just tears shit up. And, and on the chain too, he just fucking rocks. But then when he plays these kind of more acoustic numbers, he's just unparalleled. I just don't think anybody comes close to me. I mean... 
it's this really clean style of playing. I just really like it. Yeah. No, it's his, so his own. It is it's so his own. Yeah. He's he, his finger picking styles, this interesting mix of like all sorts of different uh, styles. It's, it is really uh, quite unique. Uh, the next song is Don't Stop. Um, this was written by Christine and it's sung by Christine and Lindsay together. Um, here's a clip from the classic albums documentary uh, where Ken Kelly is talking about how this track came to be. All laid back, not much more, but a little bit, you know. Christine McVie, Don't Stop. She's saying, hold the track back. They, they're looking at each other. They're checking out the feel. Everybody thinks that's the right tempo. Rolling the ball. Don't Stop, it's a shuffle. She came down and started playing this, this riff. Uh, John and Mick... Nick fell in with the hi-hat shuffle thing on the drums. Uh, John came in with this killer pumping bass. So people know the song. We don't need to play a minute of it. Uh, but yeah, what do you think of this one? Uh, this might be my favorite Fleetwood Mac song of all time. It's tough. I have a few, and a couple of them might be on this record. I really, I also really love Rhiannon, uh, but... But I think what I love about this song and what that classic albums documentary is so good at showing is like, what would this song have been like without Lindsay there? You know, it's it's like she has all these great songs on Penguin and Mystery to Me and, you know, uh, Bear Trees and Future Games. They're all great, uh, but or not all of them are great, but there's quite a few that could have been hits. But the arrangements just don't make it. And if you had this song just as be a plain shuffle without all that great, bright kind of synth backdrop or whatever, uh, without all the touches, without Lindsay's vocal interplay with her, uh, I just don't think it would be what it is. And I think uh, one of the craziest things about it is how optimistic and feel good it is after you have, right after never going back again. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm never going back again. Um, and I think uh, this is just so optimistic and it just kind of, her songs are happier. Like she's happy and it's almost like to spite John. Yeah. You know? It's like, <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah, maybe she's, yeah. What it, you were, you were going to talk about what don't stop might mean to her. Yeah. Maybe, I, or, I think she might've uh, gotten a visit from uh, Curry, the, the lighting director or roadie or whoever she was uh, with. Um, visiting her during the making of this. Uh, and she talks about in the classic album documentary how uh, the visits from her, uh, you know, uh, paramours would have to sneak in and around John or he would get angry and throw a fit, even though they were actually divorced at the time, you know. But um, yeah, so maybe this was uh, a, a commentary on um, her new relationships, let's call it. Yeah, it's weird. She had such bad taste in men. So she was with John McBee for a while. He was a drunk. She leaves him. She goes to this guy who's just a philanderer. Yeah. Right? He's like fucking everybody and everyone on the, uh, every woman in sight that he can get to. And then she goes to Dennis Wilson, who is even who worse, makes, <laughs> who makes John McVie look like uh, the most sober guy on earth. Yeah. You know, he's just like a, a he's an alcoholic and a philanderer. So she had an alcoholic, then a philanderer. I mean, I'm sure John McVie was probably screwing her on her behind her back. It was the seventies. They were doing coke. You know, who knows? Yeah. And and then and then she goes to Dennis, who's like cheating on her and a drunk. Yeah. So it's like, uh, I kind of feel bad for her in a way, 
But uh, but yeah, it's funny how Optimus. I mean, maybe maybe she was saying, "Don't stop to Curry, like don't stop." You know, <laughs> yeah, keep maybe. going, <laughs> keep going. And then yeah. John's like, "Oh, he's playing the baseline." <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the rhythm section on this song is another fucking miracle. I love the shuffle, the drum, the drums, yeah. and, and the bass. It's just like they. I mean, I really like my first thought of this album as I came into this in the past few weeks. I've been listening to it a lot, obviously trying to think about what we think about it and all this. My first thought was like, okay, this is really Lindsay and he's using these people kind of like Brian Wilson with the Beach Boys, even though not to that extent, because obviously Christine McVie and, and Stevie Nicks are just kick-ass songwriters. But it's like, I really feel more like this is the band. Like this album, even though Lindsay is the produce, you know, uh, making a lot of the creative decisions, the band together really sounds like a band on this album, maybe even more than the 75 album or any other album. Yeah. And, and they just all contribute. And that's what makes it one of the things that makes it so great. Yeah. I mean, I like this song to me. It's a little, um, like I said, it's a little fucked out. I've heard it a little too much. Yeah. um, Yeah. No, it's, you know, all time classic, of course. Um, All right. So the next song is go your own way. This is written and sung by Lindsay. Um, Again, maybe Lindsay working out some of his uh, emotional problems uh, on this song. You, you referenced the lyrics about shacking up um, is all you want to do. Here is a clip of uh, Ken Calais, again, the producer, and Mick Fleetwood talking about um, the bass part of this song a little bit and some of the, the background stuff. Listen. It's like a whole orchestra going on. He's creating a whole counter... That magic. You're a monster, John. John is a monster. Um, one of the interesting things about that bass line is the bass is actually going its own way compared to the yeah. rest of the song, right? Like literally um, out of the out of time. It's a little behind. It's a little ahead. Clearly, it's kind of bouncing all around melodically. And it's, it's great. And it totally enhances the song. And there's that guitar whole countermeasure. He says counterpoint. Like that uh, in the classic albums documentary. I mean, everybody should watch that documentary. Obviously, we wish we had the St. John documentary to show you, but it's we only have these fragments, right? You know, to see the real truth behind the album, the emotional truth. But as far as the technical stuff, the classic albums documentary. I mean, I haven't read Making Rumors yet, so Jeff's read that. That's probably really good too. I think the classic albums documentary though is one of my favorite episodes of that. I love that series anyway. Uh, but that's one of the best episodes because one of my favorite parts is this, how Lindsay shows he added this simple guitar part that's kind of a counterpoint to the rest of the song. And it just changes it all. And it's just such, to me, that's that's an example of his absolute genius because he could just hear that in his head. Like, I need to put this weird part in that doesn't, that seems like it wouldn't go. And then, and then the, all the different, like, and you mentioned the bass and everything, how it all flows together in the song. It's just unbelievable what comes out of it. Yeah. It's just so great. Yeah. Uh, the next song on the album, of course, is Songbird. This is written and sung by uh, Christine McVie. Here is a clip of uh, Ken Calais from Classic Albums talking about uh, this one. Songbird was a. Uh, I mean, that was a great moment for me. I, as I recall, ev- everybody had gone home or were, were leaving, and Christine was noodling out in the studio and playing the song, and I, I like, had the, the mics up, and I, I listened, and I didn't know what she was playing, but it was gorgeous. The song required that depth of a, of a concert hall. 
I had recorded um, Joni Mitchell at Berkeley Community Theater. Was that your idea to do it? Uh -huh. Oh, nice one. Good one. And I remember that Berkeley Community Theater was the best live recording. I mean, I had this, this ambience. And so, well, we called over to, to Berkeley Community, and it was not available. I don't know what they were doing. They said, hey, there's Zellerback Auditorium down the street. So we set up the truck and, and made the plans. And we ordered the, the orchestral a shell. Yeah, so they recorded this in Berkeley, I think. The Zellerbach is actually on the campus at Cal. Right, right. Yep. It is. Yep. yep. So, and then here's Christine McVie talking about the song directly. And they set up the hall with just me on the stage with a, with a piano and uh, some roses and, and champagne. And that's how it started. Uh, and, and continued to go on till about 7 o'clock the following morning, you know. It was it was took a long time because I had to do it in one take. One one thing that people don't often recognize about that song, obviously, it features her singing in this very haunting piano sound captured in the um, acoustics of that arena. But there's a guitar in the background that's very quiet and subtle. It's Lindsay playing it, mm. um, and it just adds a lot to the song. People don't. It's not very prominent. You have to listen for it almost. But it's great. I love this song so. Yeah, I never, you know, through most of my time with this album, I was really short this and the other kind of softer song by Christy McVie, Oh Daddy. And I, I was really short these songs. I was not into them. I think it's just because I like the more upbeat stuff generally, um, which most of the album is, even if, even if it's stuff like uh, Never Going Back Again, it had more energy to it. But when I really listened to the album this time, I just realized this is an absolute masterpiece of a song. It's like, it's as good as like Let It Be and that that kind of, you know, the Beatles stuff. I think this is like Christine McVie at her absolute peak of songwriting. And it kind of shows how great she really was. Um, and I think it's, you know, it kind of shows that Fleetwood Mac was, you know, really kind of the best band ever at this point. And um yeah, it's it's just a brilliant song. I think it's one of the great ballads of all time. And I think the production and keeping it austere like that and yeah. simple with just a guitar and just the piano, I think is what really makes it. And her voice, too. Her voice is just fantastic. Yeah. And it's the, great. And the decision to record it in this hall um, that yeah. you know, Ken Kelly was talking about. It's a weird decision in a sense. It's like, why not just record it in the studio where they were at? But it was a great decision. It really enhanced the song. She's far away i mean sonically and it, it kind of just adds a mood to the song right which is just like oh there's this longing and there's this sort of looking at a distance and there's this i don't know i i i love this song and and she sings it wonderfully and it's a it's a brilliant song um the next song on the album is actually one of the most interesting um the chain now this is what's interesting about this a couple of things one this is actually written by the entire band most of the other songs on the album were written by either Lindsay or Stevie or Christine. This was actually written and uh, by the whole band and, of course, sung by all the singers. Lindsay, Stevie, and, and Christine all, you know, sing different parts of it together and uh, separately in various pieces. This came together as a jam. This was a bunch of different songs all kind of uh, cudgeled together. And the making of it and how it actually came into being was very interesting. I didn't ever know the story until we came across the St. John documentary clip, right? Which um, right. tells the we story. We find out what the chain actually is. Right. Yeah, what, what the chain means, right? Right. So Because, I mean, the lyrics are kind of nonsense, right? I mean, they're, they're, the first part of the song is written by Stevie, 
right? If you don't love me now, you will never love me again. Right. I mean, it's like, it's like, it, it, no one really knows what her lyrics mean in this song, but I mean, it's like, it, it's, you know, it's like a piece of a song, right? And then the end was, uh, I guess the baseline was written by John McPhee, right? Right. And it's a great, one of the all-time great bass lines ever in any song, I think. Yeah. Um, and then uh, what about the melody of the end? Did they write that together? Or yeah, I, like, think, um, I think they were just sort of jamming on it as, you know, all the various events of it coming together happened. Um, so it was a, it was a collaboration of in the, in the grandest sense. And what we didn't understand, and I had no idea until we got the St. John uh, documentary, documentary Eclipse, is actually just how it came into existence. So we're going to play a clip from uh, the St. John documentary about the chain. So here we go. Well, one late afternoon, I was looking for Stevie so we could record some vocals for a new, unnamed song she was working on. When she wasn't recording, she often hung out in Sly Stone Studio. It was wild, decorated as a 70s love nest with satin, mood lighting, candles everywhere. It also had a jacuzzi plus a, a giant rotating bed in the middle of the studio floor. On this day, I walked in on Stevie and Mick utilizing the bed accompanied by the sound of mixed smacking wooden balls. The woods are lonely. Now here you go again. Oh, dark and deep. You say you want your freedom. And we have miles to go. But who am I to keep you down? Before we sleep, transition! I see the crystal vision. Stevie! Mick! What the fuck? Is shacking up all you want to do? Fuck you, Lindsay. You can go to hell. When we get back to L.A., I'm moving out. You can go your own way. What? Where's the lighting director or security manager or roadie I'm currently shagging? Chris, look at what Stevie and Mick are up to. The rumors are true. Oh, Daddy Mick, looks like you're giving that songbird Stevie a rifle poking. You should talk, love. You've been poked by every member of the crew. You shut up, John, you drunken sod. Toss off, Chris, you old slag. I, I got a ruddy solution for this sticky wicket. Why don't we all have a go together on Sly's bed? Let's form a chain and get it on. Transcension! And uh, that's how the song The Chain literally came into being. Wow. Yeah, that's right. So so now we know what the chain literally was. Yeah. It was all of them chained together in a giant orgy on Sly Stone's bed. Yeah. So that's how that song came to be, really. 
makes a lot of sense. And, and it also, you know, you were talking about Stevie's lyrics uh, being more evocative than literal, right? Um, here's a clip of Christine McVie actually talking about that as well, um, having to do with the, the chain and presumably other things too. Well, Stevie's words can be pretty obscure at, at, uh, at best, you know. I mean, sometimes, uh, well, I didn't know what she was singing about, but, it, you know, in her mind, th those words make complete sense, and I, I often used to wonder what on earth she was talking about, you know. But then you didn't care because the words just sounded so good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, also, um, you know, it's pretty clear that... Um, it was about cocaine. Right. So... <laughs> In general, um, I, I do think that I learned a lot about uh, this song I had never never knew from uh, that St. John documentary. So hopefully... Um, it's true. It's true, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So as to what I think about this song, yeah. it's another contender for my favorite by the band of all time. I mean, it's like an AO, AOR FM classic. I mean, I love the... The, the beginning of the song, just the, every, the, every, the way everything sounds. And the end is just one of these great codas, you know, that we always talk about of, you know, songs that have these great builds and codas. And, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously we have John McBee's immortal baseline, one of the most uh, iconic in history. And then you have Lindsay just going off on guitar and the whole band just rocks at the end. And it really shows they could rock. You yeah. know, I mean, that's the, it's the hardest rock song it, you know, world turning and I'm so afraid of pretty heavy too. But I mean, this is probably, you know, since the, uh, since the old days or maybe even ever the kind of hardest they ever rocked. And he really shreds on that too. So it's a great song. Yep. I agree. I, yeah. Yeah. And I like, I like the lyrics. I think they're cool. Um, and obviously we, you know, you know, we kind of know that it does make sense. It's kind of a, you know, a human chain of five people. Yeah. Just having sex is what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Sexy 70s, right? Yeah. Um, all right. The next song, uh, no clip here, uh, but you make loving fun, written and sung by Christine. I kind of think this is a giant F you to John being a drunken mead poo, um, kind of how she said in the St. John documentary clip. But what do you think about this song? Yeah, you make loving fun is is a, obviously a message to uh, the lighting guy, right? What's yeah. his name again? Curry. Curry. Something. Curry. So uh, that's his last name. Yeah. So no, it's so, his first I, name. <laughs> oh, it's his first name. Yeah, I forget this. Curry. Last name. It's like a nickname. Yeah, right? I don't probably. Know. <laughs> anyway, well, we'll get that in the show notes. We'll put a picture of him up there because he's obviously was a was a true uh, a factor in the making of this album. All these you guys know, I, look like sorry. All these guys look like Bobby Kimball from Toto with the same hair and this. <laughs> oh yeah, mustache. Anyway. anyway yeah. uh, you know, the thing about this song is when I listened to this, it really made me realize why Rumors is better than the 1975 album. Because going into this exercise of listening to this album again and kind of evaluating it and seeing where I stood on it, I was kind of of the kind of come from a contrarian point of view saying, you know, I think I think the 75 album's better, you know, or it's just as good. Um, it's really great. But when I listen to this and I compare it to songs like that, I think are songwriting wise just as good say that you love me over my head and even hold on for mirage i feel like this song with what Lindsay does to it in the production is like a cut above all those songs because of the acoustics because of the you know his he's got a pretty smoking uh guitar in this as well it like really adds 
uh, to it. And it just feels like this is like almost like in color and those are in black and white. Like, I don't feel like the 75 album just, it just doesn't sound as good. You know, it just doesn't have as much detail to it, even though the material is like just as good, really. Not every song, there's stuff like Sugar Daddy sucks. Like there's nothing as bad on as Sugar Daddy on this album. <laughs> but even like Warm Ways is cool. And, you know, like all the uh, Monday Morning is great. You know, um, Blue Letter, these are all great songs. You know, Rhiannon is one of the best. And I, I like the way that sounds, but it's just, this is the real, uh, the real masterpiece of the two albums. And I think this song really showed me that when I listened to it again. Um, I love the airy harmonies, you know, if you could believe in the ways of magic, um, you know, in miracles. But what part of me when I listened to this, I thought, is she singing about a guy or is she singing about cocaine? Yeah. You know, know, like like you make love and fun. Cocaine makes love and fun. I'm sure it does. I've never done it, really. So I couldn't tell you. But well, Stevie um, would say it was about yeah. cocaine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Again. And again, this is another positive Christine song, but it's like we always have to think of John having to play and listen to this. Yeah. Um, I know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The next song on there is I Don't Want to Know. It's written by Stevie, uh, sung by Stevie and Lindsay. And it's kind of an Everly Brothers duet song. I don't know if it's my favorite song in the album, but I like it a lot. Every time I hear it, I think, wow, this is a really good song. It sounds like something they, they could have done um, maybe a little bit more acoustically with Buckingham Knicks, but the way their voices yeah. go together is is very much Buckingham That's what Nicks. makes it. That's yeah. what makes it. I mean, the arrangement's really simple compared to a lot of the other songs, and it's a simpler song, but man, it's catchy as hell, and the singing is so good. The yeah. way they sing together is just sounds so organic, and and it's great. Yeah. Um, the next song is Oh Daddy, uh, another daddy song. Christine has some kind of weird daddy complex. Supposedly about Mick. Yeah. Well, according, yeah. according to the St. John documentary, she did call him Daddy Mick. That's right. Daddy Mick. You so know, maybe he's like the daddy of all of them. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good it's a good instinct there. Um, this is my least favorite song on the album. I, I just. It's fine. I like it. But if you said, what's the worst song in the album? I think it's this. But that's relatively speaking, because it's still pretty good. Yeah, I like the music on it a lot. I, I think it's it it doesn't quite have the rumors feel that some of the other ones do. It almost sounds like it could be a throwback to the Welch era for me. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I love I love her melody on it. It's It's grown on me a lot over the years. I would say I agree with you for the most part, but it's definitely grown on me. Um, and I think it fits well with the sequence, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, I even have it in my head now. It's, it's, it's catchy in its own way, you know, and, and I think it's just, it's, it's maybe not the the highest profile song on the record. Yeah. Last song on the original album here, and there's reissues and stuff with demos and alternate versions, but the last song in the original is Gold Dust Woman, obviously written and sung by Stevie. Um, here is Stevie from classic albums talking about it directly. Goldust Woman was a little bit about drugs. It was about, you know, keeping going. It was about cocaine. There you go. Yeah. So, it's really white dust woman. Yeah. That's really what it is. Yeah. 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 Take your silver spoon. And it's more like take your soup spoon. Yeah. And it's like uh <laughs> Like take your take your a ladle and fill it with the cocaine. Yeah, and to the listeners out there who aren't as familiar with the uh, 
long history of this band and this album and stuff like that think we're overdoing it on the cocaine references. We are not. Just go and uh, read or listen to Carolyn Harris's book. Go and read or listen to The Making Rumors by Ken Calais. They were doing cocaine constantly during the making of this album and even more on tour for rumors. I mean, it was just- And Tusk, and like Tusk. that's a cocaine-fueled album. I mean, Lindsay in his bathroom studio just fucking, you know, yeah. powered by cocaine. and It's crazy. Um, lastly, um, one song you referenced this before that didn't make this album because of the technical limitations of- Well, we should talk about Goldust Woman right Okay, quick. yeah, yeah. Um, because, I, yeah, it's one of the great album closers of all time, I think. And- uh, Again, it's like, you know, her kind of witchy lyrics, but it, man, it's such a good song. I think the, um, the, the musical backdrop and the weird kind of screaming and spooky effects that he added to the song, just make it. Cause it's really simple. A lot of Stevie's songs are very simple. Like something like Sarah barely has any, you know, uh, melodic change, but it's just the whole backdrop yeah. he creates on it is so beautiful. And it's like this one, it just becomes this dark kind of epic, like witchy you know, it's it's up there with Rhiannon in a way. It's kind of in that same mode. And, it, you know, it really kind of, I think that his whole backdrop is part of what propelled her to superstardom is that whole uh, mysterious backdrop he adds to her already kind of evocative lyrics and songwriting. And it's just, such, it's a masterpiece. It's great. Um, anyway. Yeah, I like it too. Uh, some of the Stevieisms and almost bleeding of her voice is a little too much for me at times, but I still love the song and I do agree that it's a great closer uh, for the album. And, um, you know, if you ever want to be reminded of drug use and cocaine, you just listen to this album and, and all the 70s era that they are so part of comes rushing back and the song is just emblematic of that to the nines, right? Um Lastly here, before we get into final evaluations, um, one song that didn't make this album that was recorded during these sessions was a song called Silver Springs, which if you're a Fleetwood Mac song, you've heard because they played live, especially in more recent decades, a lot. Um, it was released as a, as a B-side, I think, to um, maybe Go Your Own Way. One it of was the, Go Your Own Way. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. Go Your Own Way. Um, and there, it didn't make the original album because, not because it wasn't good enough. I think everyone loved the song. For, for length reasons. So the original vinyl um, had time limits and this song was just too long. And so they replaced it with um, I Don't Want to Know, which is a great song. I Stevie was very upset, very upset. Uh, I said rare, it sounded like rarely, but I said very upset um, over the cutting this. But she was somewhat uh, mollified by the fact that um, they did I Don't Want to Know, she, uh, another song she wrote and liked. Um, but this was a favorite of hers. Um, Silver Springs, she mentioned, was it's a town uh, in Maryland, and they were driving by it, and she saw the sign. She said, I'm going to write a song called Silver Springs. So um, not my favorite song in the world, um, and the lyrics are a little too stalkery for me. Um, but since it's not on the album, we're not really going to cover it uh, that much, but you've probably heard it, and Slip, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Um, I, um, yeah, I don't have really much to say about it. Yeah, I I think they made the right choice to drop this. I think it's the weakest probably of the songs. It's still good. Yeah. But I I don't think there was room. I mean, you know, it was kind of weird they they the way the album is split up songwriting wise, I think Christine McVie has the most songs. 
right? She's got four. Yep. And Stevie kind of has three and a half because the whole first part of the chain was her. So you could, you know, and then Lindsay has what three. Yep. So so it's like it it's kind of split pretty evenly. I think having some epic Silver Springs kind of thing on there wouldn't have really worked. I mean, you already have Stevie Nicks already has like the you know the biggest hit on the album, and she's got Gold Dust Woman, which is pretty epic in its own right. Yep. So it's like I and I think that's a much better song than this. So I think they made the right choice, even though you know it's a good song. I like it. Agreed. All right, so uh, wrapping things up here for final thoughts. So where do you come down ultimately on this? Album? Okay, so obviously this has kind of been more of an exploration of the album and more of a kind of celebration commemoration. You know, happy Valentine's Day. We found this documentary. We decided to play some, get give you the secrets behind the album. Uh, it's not so much of an evaluation because I think we've already demonstrated at the beginning of the show that it's already stood the test of time and I think it's going to continue. But some thoughts on the album I had while going through this exercise. First of all, a couple of times in my life, I've kind of like run into these albums that everybody loves, you know, or that are acclaimed. And I've had the thought, you know, is this the best album ever? You know, obviously my first my first foray into that was my discovery of Dark Side of the Moon when I was in sixth grade. Um, you know, obviously when Jeff brought, got pet sounds, that was another time. And this time rumors came up in my mind. Cause I just thought this is so perfect, this album. And it really, I would say my thoughts of the album before were more about the pop craft and how good the songs were and less about the subject matter and the whole story behind the album. But this time I actually respected that more, you know, I actually respected what went into this album and the turmoil around it. And how the songs play off of that and how they how they vie for a positive outcome versus not, you know, some negative stuff and how the song, how rich that is uh, lyrically. And I, I never thought of that before. Um, and I thought while I was listening to that, this definitely came to mind. I'm not you know, I have my favorite albums. I have what I think are the best. I mean, Rumors is definitely one of my favorite albums. Um, I don't know if it's the best, but um, it's one of them. You know, it's a contender for sure. And um, I think it's good in that way that Beatles albums are because it's sophisticated, it's complex, but it's also appealing commercially, right? Yeah. It's appealing across the board. You take something like Sgt. Pepper's or, you know, Revolver or the White Album or Abbey Road. They're they're complex, sophisticated albums, but that appeal, have a universal appeal just because of the quality and because the songs are catchy and memorable as well. And even though they're daring and experimental. And I think there's this album I did, you know, I recognize some of the pop crap, but I didn't recognize how experimental and how much they were laying it on the line for this. Obviously, they would do it even more in Tusk. You know, these Tusk at the time was a million dollar recording, most expensive album ever made at the time. But this was probably before it might have been a contender. You know, I don't know how much Asia costs to make or some of these albums. I mean, they that took forever to make and they spent all this time. But um, but, you know, rumors is definitely one of those. Um, and then, of course, there was that whole contention between the 75 album and rumors. I definitely would put the 75 album as my second favorite Fleetwood Mac album. And I kind of was like, is it as good as Rumors? Because I like a lot of the, I like almost everything on it. And I think it's similar in structure in some ways. But as I listened to this more closely and I compared it to that and went back and forth between the two, I, as I mentioned, I just feel like this is a whole other level of production and craft that the 75 album didn't have. And I think this is the superior of the two um, at in the end of the day. Um, 
And I guess I had new respect for the other members of the band. You know, I always knew Christine McVie and Stevie Nicks were good songwriters, but I really think they're quite brilliant on this record. I think everything they do on this record is absolute genius. And I think it's the collaboration with Lindsay. I always just kind of thought, well, they're good songwriters, but then he really makes the songs. And that's true to a certain extent. But in general, I think they're just brilliant songwriters in their own right. And I really appreciated their contributions more. I also had more of an appreciation for John uh, McVie and Mick Fleetwood's contributions this time around, listening to all their playing and how they make the sound and how it wouldn't be possible without them even though they're not songwriters and even though, you know, musical talent wise, maybe they're not the best at their instruments. They're good and they know what to play for the songs. And I think they both have a unique idiosyncratic style. It just wouldn't work the same with anybody else. Yep. And I think that's what makes it. So as we mentioned, as far as the whole CFX conceit, the criteria we put forth as to whether an album is long or short, there's just no doubt that this is long, right? I mean, it's long as the day is, and, you know, it's forever. It's like, if any album stands the test of time more than any other in history, it might be this. I mean, I think more millennials and Gen Z, well, not millennials, but maybe more Gen Z even know who Fleetwood Mac are more than the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, be, there are yeah. kids who don't even know who the fucking Beatles are. It's very old. You know, I think once they hear it, they get it, you know, because there's a universal appeal. But I think with Stevie Nicks, especially, she, her myth has just risen. You know, she's the only woman so far to be inducted. I should mention they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998, which of course is a no-brainer, right? Right. But um, she's the only woman to be inducted twice, once for her solo career and once for uh, her, you know, regular career, which I think is definitely more warranted than someone like Ringo Starr being inducted for his stupid, terrible solo career. I mean, her solo career kind of deserves it because she was a like Pat Benatar, we mentioned in our, our former episode, she was a trailblazer for female rock stardom. You know, she Belladonna was an absolute blockbuster just on her strengths as a songwriter and performer alone without any of the other members. So I think if anybody's going to stand the test of time, it's her. But also Lindsay's a genius. You know, I mean, he he I think he will be continue to be recognized as one of the great guitarists and also one of the great producers and crafters of popular music. And so I think this album is, yeah, it's going to stand the test of time. And it's it's the ultimate Valentine's Day album. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, as we heard <laughs> in the clips. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Go have your own chain with uh, your. And hopefully Mr. St. John will be recognized for his contribution. Finally, hopefully this, the word gets out and we realize what a trailblazer and what a brave filmmaker he was to, to get behind the scenes and really, really tell us the truth about this album. Right. Yeah. I don't, so anyway, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I don't even know if he's still alive, but um, hopefully yeah, he who is knows he, where he is. He might be in hiding. He, he might, might be. be afraid of those clacking balls hitting him across <laughs> yeah. the face. You know? Right. Or yeah. banging him on the chin. Yeah. He um, hears transcension being screamed from the other side of his door and he knows he needs to go into a Salman Rushdie style, uh, <laughs> you know, hermitage or hiding. Yeah. Well, Salman Rushdie didn't pay much heed to that and paid the price. No, no, no. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah. So my, my final thoughts are um, I have always liked this album, even when it wasn't popular to like this kind of thing, you know, back when we were in college, you know, there was a lot, right. a lot of, you know, well, you can't possibly like this stuff. This is like the, you know, superstar, you know, album arena stuff. This is all something you have to rebel against. No, nonsense, nonsense. This is great. It's always been great. Um, I've always been a fan of Lindsay, as Slip was saying. 
Um, Christine, I've always liked and admired. Stevie Nicks, I have a more complicated uh, musical relationship with. I certainly respect her. I th certainly think that she deserves the, the kind of fame and recognition and for her songwriting and stuff like that. I also think she's one of the most affected and conceited people ever. And it's really oh, yeah. hard for me to listen to her talk. I, I just, yeah. I, she just, just really irritates me. Um, she is, and I don't know why. Um, I think she's really bad, but she's not any worse than any number of other rock stars that are out there. Um, so I, I don't know what it is. Um, but nevertheless, she's very talented. And to your point, she is a superstar of the band. And, and I do have a, uh, respect for all of her contributions, for sure. Um, despite my personal sort of like uh, her talking again sort of thing. Um, I want to reiterate uh, a couple things that we've talked about a lot on CFX. One is the um, pre-Pro Tools era and post-Pro Tools era. And this album obviously being pre. And when you hear the talent of Stevie Nicks and Lindsay and the rest of the band, uh, Christine and John and, and Mick, and what they're able to produce, everything you heard, they made in that studio. Um, they did it over multiple takes and all that. It's not like it was all one take, but they everything you heard, they did. It was their talent. Um, it was their abilities. And this is true of other bands of that era, Queen and Steely Dan and Led Zeppelin and da -da -da, all the rest, Pink Floyd of that era for sure. Um, but everything post-Pro Tools sounds different because it is not all bands cheat quote unquote with pro tools, but you have to be proven otherwise in my mind. Like if you're doing something with this sort of level of craftsmanship in the post pro tools era, you have to prove that you can do it live. And if you can't, then I'm going to pretty much suspect that it's studio magic. And yeah, one of the things true. I love about this era is there's no studio magic. I mean, other than the talent of the people, which I just, over the years, have more and more respect for. Um, my admiration for John and Mick is a rhythm section. We've talked about that. I, I think their talent is playing what's needed for the song. And when you think about it, it's like, okay, they're not super flashy players, but that's their strength because they're great players. Not every song requires it to be flashy and over the top. And when it does, they do it. Like uh, on Go Your Own Way, when we were talking about the contributions of John McVie on that, for example. Um, a couple of things to wrap up here. My fanhood of Lindsay, I think, has evolved um, as a result of research for this particular episode. I've always been a fan for many, many years, as we've been talking about. But in researching this episode, reading uh, the Storms book, reading the Making Rumors book, hearing other things that have been written about Lindsay, he is a very troubled guy. I was oh, going to yeah. call it out that he is a piece yeah, of Yeah, we didn't women. mention that enough. We didn't mention that enough because, yeah, he he definitely, uh, after reading those books, you see how terrible he kind of was. Um, Stevie Nicks in her book talks about a few times when he, you know, got physical with her. Um, Caroline Harris has at least a half a dozen times where he beat the shit out of her, just to be blunt about it. Uh, Christina Conti, who's that waitress that we talked about from she talked about in something where he hit her a few times. Ken Calais talks about how, uh, you know, we mentioned how Lizzie choked him. Um, th this is somebody who is a very troubled person. I, I, I'm not going to gloss over this. This is awful. 
We and, also didn't mention his epilepsy either, right. yeah. um, which which he, I guess, was he discovered after rumors was recorded. He had a seizure in Philadelphia when they were on tour. Yep. And Car- Caroline Harris talks about that. I mean, that could have been maybe his brain isn't, you know, maybe that's there's some brain stuff going on there that may help him with his genius. But obviously, maybe he has some troubles there, too. Yeah. Um, the wiring is crossed or something. I don't know. He seems to have, you know, breaks with reality because in the Carol Ann Harris book, Storm, she talks about how he beat the shit out of her. And then, you know, the next day, completely not even act like he remembered doing it. It's not an excuse, but I mean, clearly there's something mentally wrong with the guy. Um, And and that needs to be called out as part of the story here because it's a disturbing part of the story, to be frank. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say to wrap up my part is Fleetwood Mac today um, has toured recently with um, what's the guy? Uh, it, it Mike Campbell. So Neil Neil Finn, Neil Finn from yeah, uh, Crowded yeah. House and yeah. uh, Split Ends, and then Mike Campbell, Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Right, who's a great guitarist, yeah. and I have a huge yeah. amount of respect for. And Neil, Finn, those are both talented guys yeah, for but, sure. You know, even the two of them, I don't see them replacing uh, Lindsey Buckingham. No, and no way. I watched some clips of them playing live in relatively recent vintage, and they suck. They sound yeah. terrible. They need to stop. Everybody just needs to don't stop. Yes, please stop. Please retire. <laughs> please retire and stop playing a Fleetwood Mac. That's right. That's um, right. Lindsey doesn't sound great either. He's had health problems. You mentioned he had a major heart attack and bypass surgery and all that. He lost his voice for a while. He is still playing. You can see him tour. I wouldn't recommend it. it you know, as big a fan as I am, the recent stuff is just not up to the same. You've seen quality. him though, right? I've we seen didn't him talk twice. About that. Yeah. yeah. I've seen him twice live in relatively small places. And he was great um, when I saw him, but this was a number of years ago at this point. Um, so yeah, I, I think they need to hang it up, but there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody does at some point, and I think their uh, career and legacy highlighted by this album is, you know, as high as it gets in the annals of rock history. As, as I think they'll about. have to. I mean, the the problem is they won't if Stevie Nicks is still around. I think if she's not around, they would hang it up. I mean, she is, you know, seems to be doing okay after her many years of drug abuse and stuff. She's still going, and then if John McVie dies, I think they should, they should hang it up. I yeah. mean, you know, John McVie or Vic Fleet would die because that's the, that's the one constant of this band. That is the only constant of those two guys. Yeah. And it's like, if one of them dies, it's not Fleetwood Mac. And I don't think it's Fleetwood Mac without Lindsay, to be honest. Um, I don't think it was Fleetwood Mac without, without Christine. Yeah. You know, I think, I think you need the five of them all together and it's just, yeah, I mean, one of them's probably going to die in the next few years. You know, I, they're getting really old, and they, they all did coke, and you don't live. Coke is not good for life expectancy, no matter because when you do it, it damages your heart, it damages your organs. I mean, you know, it's just it's very you know Keith Richards, notwithstanding or Keith Richards, you know, most people can't deal with that toxic load, and I think they're you know they're going to have some issues. Well, I but, mean, I, I think weirdly, heroin and opioids are much easier on your system. Oh yeah, look at William Burroughs; he lived to be in, in his nineties. Yeah, then cocaine. You know? is, yeah, yeah. Like Eric Clapton was on heroin for like forty years, which maybe has rotted his brain. If you hear him talk about like COVID stuff, he's gone like. Or he's yeah, he's kind of racist too. He did some racist shit in the seventies, man. I mean, he's really, really. Uh, 
a problematic dude, which yeah. I don't have a problem with because I don't fucking like him at all. So <laughs> I don't like any. I like Cream a little bit. I mostly don't like him. But with Lindsay, I have a problem with him because I like him. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't like him being a jerk. I think he definitely has some mental illness problems um, to go along with his genius. Yeah. It's too bad. It is. Lastly, about Stevie Nicks is she also sounds like shit now, I have to say. Yeah. Um, she sounds like a bleeding goat when she sings. It, it, it's really not good. Um, her fandom doesn't care, and that's yeah. fine. I, you know, I have no She's problem. transcended. She's like an icon. She She's is. transcended it all. Yeah. And, and you know what? As bad as she sounds, it's her out there singing, and that's fine. And like we were talking about on the Motley Crue episode, it's horrible just a god awful as Vince Neil is, he's not faking it out there, which right. I kind of respect, even though it's the worst piece of shit thing ever. He's doing it. People are paying for it. That's between him and the people paying for it. And the same with Stevie Nicks. And, and she's, you know, always popular, really popular today with younger people, especially younger women. You know, good for her. She doesn't sound good anymore, but she's, you know, she's an old lady at this point, And her voice is not the type of voice that's going to last a long time, like a Pat Benatar, it's, it's had its time, you know, it's seen better days. And so what, you know, she's one of the greatest rock stars ever. Um, and will go down in history as such. So there you go. Speaking of which, you know, you mentioned Motley Crue, have we surpassed the Motley Crue episode at this point? Um, we're going to be right under that, uh, five minutes. Uh, That means too fast for love is better than rumors. I'll end it there. (laughs) Just kidding. All right. We will end it here to make sure we All come right. in under two That's right. for love. Molly so. Cruz still owns it. All Molly right. Cruz still owns it. So this is Jeff. That's Slep. We're finally signing off after two hours and 40 minutes of rumors. So catch you next time. And remember, it was about cocaine.